I am the bone of my sword. Steel is my body and fire is my blood. I have created over a thousand blades, unknown to death nor known to life. Have withstood pain to create many weapons, yet those hands will never hold anything. So as I pray, unlimited blade works! Welcome to Japanimation Station, an anime podcast brought to you by the folks at the Weekly Stuff Podcast. I am Sean Chapman. And I'm Jonathan Lack. And we are here once again to dive into the wild and wacky world of anime. This week on the show, we are covering the second and final season of uh, Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works. It's weird to call them seasons because it is just two. It's really two cores. But the back half of the show, um, a podcast I've been very excited to record because, Jonathan, you now have seen a adaptation of one of the complete roots from Fate Stay Night, which feels like a very big milestone for you in the world of anime. It's pretty good. I think, I think these people might be onto something. I think this is pretty good. I'd like to see more. I, if yeah. they have a pamphlet, I will sign up for it. Yes, I have seen this show uh, several times at this point. It looks like Fate Zero enough times that I don't remember how many times I've seen it all the way through. <laughs> I've obviously played the game. Uh, I've played the game twice. So I I know this story very well. I love this story. I love this show. But Jonathan, this is your first time seeing it, and now you have seen the full the fullness of Unlimited Blade Works. All of those blades, all of those works. What do you think? Well, obviously, I was very positive on it coming out of season one, uh, which we talked about last week, and I loved it. And that, of course, takes us up through episode twelve, which is really sixteen episodes worth of content. And then these are the final 13. Um, and, you know, at the end of that first season, you have, you know, Shiro and Reen both kind of recommitting to a new direction after the sort of dark Empire Strikes Back-esque ending of losing Saber uh, and all of that. And season two, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how season one is, you know, very character focused and not particularly plot heavy. And then season two is all the story. It is off yeah. like a bullet. It is very propulsive. I was not able to spread these episodes out until like Sunday morning or something when we record this. It was just, I, I finished them on like Wednesday or Thursday. I just went through them like, uh, they were just, it's a phenomenal set of episodes. Obviously, huge plot revelations. I think it really brings into focus what this particular story is actually about. Um... It's, you know, really interesting. In the main, this is a story 
that is a dialogue between Shiro Emiya and himself. Sometimes mm. very literally, uh, because as we learn, spoiler warning, Archer is actually Saber. Or uh, <laughs> That would be a very different yes. story. Archer is actually Shiro, excuse me. And this whole, especially the last like five or six episodes, there's some obviously fantastic action and great, you know, uh, Gilgamesh we will talk about because boy howdy Tomokazu Seki makes a fucking meal out of the final episodes of Unlimited Blade Works. Um, but at its core, it really is about this one character and his journey and, and again, this kind of dialogue with himself after this almost like Charles Dickens Christmas Carol-esque meeting of the ghost of Christmas future through Archer uh-huh. and what's going to happen with that. Um, and I'll admit, it left me, you know, the, so the penultimate episode resolves the actual action, Right. And then the final episode is an epilogue. And the penultimate episode, I was just on Cloud Nine. There's the moment where Archer uh, finishes the job on Gilgamesh. And yes. I like basically stood up and yelled, fuck yeah, because it's so good. Um, and it's so satisfying. And then the epilogue, I think, complicates things in a not dissimilar way to the epilogue of Kara no Kyokai for me. Um, and left mm-hmm. me kind of thinking about it and chewing on it and I was not really sure what I thought of it not in a is this good is this bad but like what is it saying how satisfied are we supposed to be with the answers that Shiro has found and we are given is this a happy ending is it a mixed ending is it actually a very very dark ending when you really think about it it gives you a lot to chew on and of course along the way just incredible animation and music um it's the complete package of a show. It's very good. And I do think there's a couple of points that we'll talk about um, that don't quite follow up as, you know, a sequel to Fate Zero. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff that does. I mean, I think because Unlimited Blade Works winds up being so focused on Shiro's specific journey and his goals as he inherited them from Kiritsugu, this is actually a shockingly perfect sequel. Thematically, they're so closely linked, you'd believe that I think one naturally followed the other. And of course they did just the other way around. Yes. Um, and so it, it mostly works in, in that sense too. And that is also just incredibly impressive. And I am champing at the bit to watch Heaven's Feel. So I know this is kind of long and rambling, um, but this is, this is a lot of show to try to summarize your thoughts on other than just saying, holy shit, this is a fucking great show. Um, but that's not what you came here for. You came here for deeper thoughts than that. Yeah, but I think like you're seeing one of the reasons why I really wanted to make sure that we split this podcast specifically between the two seasons is because even though season one has like about three episodes more runtime of total content, season two is so fucking dense with stuff because that's where like the majority of the payoff for all the plot stuff comes from that like. Uh, I wanted to make sure that when we got to Fate Stay Night that we could have all like the sort of fun, like opening character conversations and the world building and all that for one podcast episode. And then I was like, we need to have a whole podcast just to deal with uh, (laughs) everything that is going on in the second season. Um, Because yes, you are also blessed, Jonathan, amongst the anime viewers of the Fate franchise in that you don't have to wait years and years and years to see the movies for Heaven's Feel because I think a lot of the things you're sort of hinting at about there's some stuff that maybe doesn't fully get paid off or feels kind of unsatisfactory uh, coming off of Fate Zero, or even I think in the scope of Unlimited Blade Works in and of itself, that is stuff that you will get in Heaven's Feel. Like right. Kodamini Kide, for instance, is not 
a particularly major character, really, in Unlimited Blade Works. It's the only route from Fate Stay Night in which Kodomine is a pretty minor figure. He's a much bigger character in Heaven's Feel. So it's like some of those kinds of things. Or like Elia is also a much bigger character. Um, she, you know, she's in this a decent amount, but she's much bigger in the other two routes. Um, and then Sakura, obviously, is like a whole huge thing that is just goes completely unaddressed. <laughs> um, she doesn't even show up. I forgot. She doesn't show up in the second season at all, other than a like visual cameo in the last episode. Um, and so like those things, I think you can feel with Unlimited Blade Works that it isn't meant to be the full package. Like it is one part of a much bigger story. It's just that bigger story is delivered in a way that's unconventional because it's not traditional sequels or whatever. Um, it is alternate takes on the story. And luckily we will be able to just move on to the Heaven's Feel movies. But um, yeah, I think there's something about the, the reason I'm talking all about this is the ending thing you're talking about. The sense from the epilogue, um, which about half of that epilogue is actually original material made purely for the anime to kind of expand on the existing epilogue from the game. Um, is meant to, I think, unsettle you with the conclusion because this isn't like the full ending to the story. It is meant to be kind of like, have we reached a real answer here? And I think that's one of the things that's very fascinating about Unlimited Blade Works is that it is both a complete story in and of itself, and it is also in some ways a setup for ideas that will be expanded upon in the Heaven's Feel movies. Um, and it, it is just, it gets to be like both a complete story and like the dark middle chapter in some ways, which is not to say that the other ones aren't also super dark because they are, because all the shit is super dark. Um, but that <laughs> sense of like being suspended a little bit um, by that epilogue where you're like, is this the path that Shido needs to walk? I think is like really fascinating. It's one of the things that makes Unlimited Blade Works a very fun story to analyze. Absolutely. So I'm excited to talk about it. It's wonderful. Uh, I, I hope I do a good job on today's podcast. I just want to come clean to the listeners. We were recording this on a Sunday afternoon after I uh, flew out from, I was visiting my, my family, uh, my brother in Portland, Oregon. I flew out 6 o'clock p.m. last night, uh, had a layover in Denver for eight hours just during the middle of the night. Uh, did not sleep. That's, you can't just, it's hard at an airport. Uh, then got on a flight this morning that was delayed by an hour and a half and then got home and I took a nap and now it's time to record the Unlimited Blade Works podcast. It will, it will power me through. This show is good enough. I have enough thoughts on it. If this were a lesser topic, I would have canceled the podcast after all of that. But uh, we're going to do our best here. Yes, and, and I have nothing as extreme as that, but this is from when we're recording uh, this is like the week after I came back from work, so I'm I'm teaching again, and so I've had fourteen-year-old problems on my mind all week uh, coming back to work. Um, but yes, but Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works is too good to delay recording this podcast. It would be painful. To have to it wait would be very painful to talk about this. Yes, have you been assigning all your students different Fate Stay Night routes to read as their literature this this semester? I should do that. I should absolutely. And it's like, and we're doing, and we're doing the rated eighteen version, kids. It's like, oh I, god, you know, I've got a nice PC at home. Um, you know, it's like it's you got even though that there, it's only particularly, I think, like good in one of the roots. Um, you still got to, you know, you just got to see. You got to learn. You got to see, like, how do you put sex scenes into some stories that aren't designed for them? Or for this one, I think is very obvious which scene in the original is a sex scene. And then Heaven's Feel, they actually have the sex scenes because they're important there. But All right. Anyways. Yes. So let's start. I have one beef with this show, Sean. I have one beef okay. that I want to say. 
The theme songs for Unlimited Blade Works are so good, it's actively mm-hmm. distracting for the rest of the episodes. I talked about Ideal White, how much I loved it on the last one. This one, you you warned us, Sean, that Brave Shine would be really good. Brave Shine is really fucking good. And uh, it's just a constant distraction through every episode because I finished the song. It's rattling around in my head. I'm trying to pay attention to the episode. And I just want to go listen to Brave Shine again. It is It is the biggest failing of this show is that the theme songs are just too good for their own good. Yeah, usually we save the theme song conversation for the end, but I think it's appropriate for Brave Shine to just like <laughs> put it up front like holy fucking shit. Because um, Ideal White is very good. Um, and I, I like it a lot. And again, I kind of said last time that I had almost kind of forgotten about that song because Brave Shine kind of overshines it in many ways. Not just because Brave Shine is really fucking good. It's also just really popular. Um, so it's one of the most popular anime opening themes of the past 10 years easily. Um, and... Yeah, when you get to Brave Shine, it's got like, I feel like if you distilled in a library, or not in a library, in a laboratory, the like ideal, perfect version of the J-Rock power chord, that's what you get in Brave Shine. Like when the fucking <laughs> guitar power chords hit in the chorus of Brave Shine, it is the most like pure gut punch, like powerful guitar power chords you have ever heard for a J-Rock song. Um, I cannot get enough of it. Like whatever they did in sort of like, um, you know, getting the sound of the guitar and, you know, all the like modifications and stuff you do for their electric guitars, whatever they did, it was just like absolutely perfect. Uh, and it is so good. And just like as good as Aime has ever been on a track mm-hmm. in terms of the vocals, it just, it's, it's a beautiful shriek from the soul. The lyrics are just so perfectly tailored to the show. Um, it is something else. It's amazing. And this is around the time when Aimee starts to take over the world, right? I yes. mean, <laughs> she would have yeah, done the Unicorn Gundam themes by now. Um, yeah, this is not an Oath Sign scenario from Fate Zero where it's like right. her first song or something. She has been on plenty of stuff at this point. Um, but Brave Shine is like one of her biggest hits ever. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's just, I'm, I've been listening to an awful lot of AMA lately because of this, because of some other stuff I've been watching. The the day we're recording this, the Nier Automata anime just premiered, and she's the theme song for that. That's great. It's just, you know, she's everywhere, uh, and for good reason, because she's pretty much as good as you get at this sort of thing. Uh, she and Lisa, there's, it is, it feels a little unfair that UFO Table has locked those two down, <laughs> that they apparently can just get an AMA or a Lisa track for any show or movie they ever do, because that's kind of cheating, I feel like. To uh, get your, you're just automatically guaranteed great theme songs, and this is one of the greatest. Yeah, and luckily with Amy, we have three more Amy songs because she does the ending theme for all the movies for Heaven's Seal. So I'm very excited. I'm like actively yeah. resisting, just going. I want to hear them so bad, but I want to hear them in the context of the movie. I'm being, a, I'm being a good Japanimation station host, and I'm waiting. Um, but no, that's very great. Good. You have another Kalafina track as our ending theme this time with Ring Your Bell. Uh, that song rocks. That's that's one of those songs that's a really good like lead into the end of the episode that mm-hmm. they use really well. Uh, and then of course, Amy didn't write one song for this season. She wrote two. And Last Stardust is also just it is it is the centerpiece of one of the centerpiece scenes of the series, uh, and amazingly done. Yeah, no, all the all the songs are great uh, for this season. You know, I'm very sad that this is the last Calafina song we'll get. Um, for this season of Japan Animation Station. Um, there are other anime that they did themes for, so we might encounter Calafina again in a future episode. But um, 
Yes, the Ring Your Bell is a classic Last Stardust by Aime, which if I didn't do enough research to like fully confirm this, but it's like a very popular, at least rumor that goes around online that originally Last Stardust was going to be the opening theme. And then they realized that like it's it doesn't quite fit. And so they switched it to Brave Shine. I think it was the right choice. Like I think Last Stardust works so perfectly as an insert song where it does. Um, and Brave Shine is that kind of like gets you super pumped up kind of song. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, I don't know if that's absolutely accurate, but if it is accurate, it was a good choice. Yeah. I mean, I've seen different versions of that rumor. I think the Wikipedia page says it's because they felt they it didn't like fit the visuals for the opening they had. That's absolutely impossible because the visuals yes. are too coded to Brave Shine. There's literally a part where the lyric is, I raise the tip of my sword in the sky synced to Saber raising the tip of her sword in the sky to do the Excalibur move. Um, they they clearly did not animate that to Last Stardust. But anyway, um, I would believe that she maybe had multiple tracks ready and, you know, they, yeah. they heard them. But anyway, no, they made all the right calls. It's great. And just in case it, people couldn't understand sarcasm, I'm not actually complaining about Unlimited Blade Works having such good music. Uh, it is just hilarious how every episode I was so excited to just hear the theme song and then finish the episode so I could go hear the theme song again. It's, it was a vicious cycle. It is a very vicious cycle. I mean, I watched uh, this season in two sittings, basically. I watched uh, the first half the night after we recorded our last <laughs> set of podcasts. So that Sunday evening, I went and because especially because I know exactly where you can split it, because really you can split the season almost straight down the middle with the first half being all the caster stuff. Um, and then the second half being basically the split is where Archer reveals that he's really uh, Shiro or Shido's future, and then the second. So I watched all of those episodes, like the first six or so, that night, and then I watched the second half uh, yesterday. And I went, like, that whole week just feeling like I knew where the good stopping point was. Like, I couldn't, after talking about Fate Stay Night for, like, three hours with you, I couldn't resist just going and watching a bunch. <laughs> but then once you watch one episode, as you say, Jonathan, it's like, if nothing else, you just need to listen to Brave Shine again. Like, even if, you know, you didn't feel like you need to, had to go on to the next episode, you're like, well, I could just listen to Brave Shine one more time. And then you, all of a sudden <laughs> you've watched five more episodes than you attended to. And that's like really the effect of the second half of the show. It's extremely true. So it's wonderful. Where do you want to start with this season of Unlimited Blade Works? Um, like one thing I, just, I want to ask, just because I'm curious, because it was something that obviously in talking about this for the last episode, there were some things I had to be very careful about how I talked about them to try to not do spoilers. Um, and I'm curious, did you catch on? Because there is lots and lots of foreshadowing about it. Did you realize that Archer was Imia, um, his future self in the last season? I, I don't think I would have fully realized it from the last season. I think by the time you get to the revelation in season two, the, it's very clear. I mean, they start seeding that right yes. off the bat and you know they effectively the audience is meant to i think understand that by the time someone vocalizes it mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know if i was like looking for that twist so much i think there were definitely things i was picking up on that like there are similarities the obvious the big foreshadowing in season one is that um emia is fighting like archer and he is like imagining himself in, in his dreams and in his combat with uh, with Saber when they're training, he is like instinctively doing moves like Archer, even though he doesn't like this guy. Um, so there is some connection there. Their character designs 
evoke one another in ways that become clearer the deeper into the series you mm-hmm. get. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if I was thinking about it that way, but definitely by the time we get there, it's very obvious. Okay, good. I'm glad that my like trying to be incredibly careful about not <laughs> calling him Imia, which is like how he's referred to in stuff like Fate Grand Order when you have a hundred archers, so you can't call people archer anymore <laughs> for that game because it's too confusing. Um, I'm glad that that paid off, that it wasn't that you had already figured it out or not. Because there were a couple of moments where I was like, does Jonathan know? Um, because in the game, I think it's very hard to actually see it coming because you've already played a whole story where in the Fate route, it never comes up. Because it's not relevant to the Fate route. I think in the Fate route, if I remember correctly, Archer never actually recovers his memories at all. So it never becomes a plot point. And so you've already played through a whole story arc with this guy where like the notion of his identity being like a huge plot relevant thing was never important. And so I don't think you're even really necessarily looking for a twist there. Whereas with the anime, I've always been curious, like because they keep all the foreshadowing of which there is a lot, like, I mean, down to, you know, Shida's whole thing is that he's, you know, he was in the archery club. um, Right. And he was like this incredibly good archer. uh, And then he quits one day kind of um, seemingly at random because of Shinji. So that's one big piece of foreshadowing. You have the thing with the pendant and how there are two pendants, which they is more obvious in the anime because you can see it, whereas in the game, it's less obvious. Um, and then, as you say, there's like all this stuff about Shido is starting to be able to use the same magic as Archer is using. He's like seemingly like emulating him for no particular reason. Archer has some sort of obsession with Shido. Um, Archer like knows Saber and there's not clear like how or why he would know anything about Saber. Um, so there's like lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of foreshadowing. If you go back and watch season one, it is just like constant foreshadowing. Um, but yeah, I think if you don't have the notion that it's even possible that 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 could happen because it is kind of like an insane thing. Um, it's nice to know that that true twist can still work and still have like the effect I think it's meant to have even with in the anime version. And I don't know. I don't know if I would even call it a twist the way it is like mm-hmm. delivered to you. Over, like, I think it's a series of episodes where you start to think, are they the same person? And then you kind of get, you know, piece by piece it sort of confirmed until finally Archer and Shiro are, like, staring each other down and they say that they know it, right? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. you kind of come to know it the same way Shiro does. I do have, on the point of there being a billion Archers, here's a question that I'm very curious about. In the anime... Saber always refers to Gilgamesh as Archer because that's how she mm-hmm. knew him in Fate Zero. Is that in Fate Stay Night or yes. was that a detail added for the... Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, so in the Fate route, um, when you first encounter Gilgamesh, it's in a scene where Saber's there and she calls him Archer. Okay. Um, and that's where you get all this backstory about how there was the previous Holy Grail war and he's a servant that has stuck around. Yeah, all of that is in the original okay. game. Yeah, I was very curious about that because I wasn't sure... You know, having not read the the visual novel, I don't know what all Fate Zero invented and what it is just following from the game. And so, yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, in this, it did kind of make me sit up because they, I assume in the Fate, as you just said, in the Fate route, they, they exposit all of that. They don't have mm-hmm. to do that here, and they don't. It's just they move through it very quickly. Saber calls him Archer, even though he has no class in this version of the story, right? Because he is just... He's not a servant, really. He kind of, he's, yeah. he's a servant, but he stuck around. He wasn't summoned as one of the seven, right? I mean, he you know he physically exists in the world. Like, right. yeah, arguably, he's he's not a heroic spirit anymore because he's not actually a spirit 
any right. longer. Like whatever happened when the Grail's contents poured on him gave him a physical body. So like that's also why he can't just like disappear and shit like that like the other servants can. All of that, I have to say, blows my mind watching it in this order because it's so feel like this Gilgamesh. He's got his like modern day character design. He's mm -hmm. got the short haircut. He's got the cool black jacket. All of that. It so feels like the sequel version of Gilgamesh, like the one we met in Fate Zero. That's the original version of the character. And then this is, but that's not how it was done in the original publication order. And it does really kind of blow my mind in, in a cool way that like, that's a that's a very rich backstory that you arrived at this as the first version of Gilgamesh that people mm -hmm. would have met in Fate Stay Night. Um, but the the opposite side of that is that it works really really well as a sequel because even if there's stuff like you mentioned earlier that like Kotomine not in this a ton despite his importance in Fate Zero, Gilgamesh is really important and it's a great payoff on what we got from him yes. in in Zero. So that works like fucking gangbusters. Yeah, like really they don't do anything significant in this anime to adjust it to for those kinds of things to adjust it to match fate zero like all those lines and scenes where saber and archer archer slash gilgamesh are encountering each other talking about or to each other like that's all exactly basically how those scenes go in the game um yeah it's one of the things that's great about the game is that like that backstory stuff is really rich and very very detailed and you learn more and more about it in each subsequent route because there's lots of like the bigger backstory about the actual grail and where it comes from and all that kind of stuff that we still don't know yet that maybe right. we'll find out about in the future. But yeah, <laughs> so, so it's fate stay night has as a game, a really, really richly detailed backstory, which is why I think like fate zero was a really natural project for them to do because you have that like clear storyline with Kiritsugu and Kodamine and Gilgamesh to do, but then you had all the rest of the Holy Grail war to flesh out um, and so, yeah, it is like a really sort of it's about like the best I've ever seen this kind of thing done in terms of prequelizing something and doing an actual prequel story based on hints and things you've seen from the original. Like, I don't think you can really do it better than Fate Zero and Fate Stay Night. No, I mean, I was thinking about I don't know if we talked about this. I remember like writing this in my notes, but with Fate Zero, the thing that I do think separates Fate Zero from most great prequels is that it works 100 percent just as the introduction like, with all the other of my favorite prequels, like the Star Wars prequels or Gundam The Origin or something like that, I would never tell you to start there, right? Like, that would be a bad way to watch Star Wars. That would be a really weird way to watch Gundam. You know, that is made as a prequel. Fate Zero just works as the first story. Uh, and then you get into this. So I know we're going back to Fate Zero on that, but it, it bears repeating. That's a great show. And this show, you know, part of why it works so well, even though they're starting on the second route of the game, is because of how it is able to also operate as a sequel to to Fate Zero. And I think it does that, you know, largely very naturally, other than those couple of things like Kotomine is not big in this one, he's going to be big in Heaven's Field, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and it's something that's really relevant in Season 2, the Fate Zero stuff, because this is where it starts really coming to the front and center, because that's part of the point of the Archer twist, right, is that this is where you fully get now Shido having to, and like confront face to face the reality of like his ideals and what his ideals are, where they come from, what they can lead him to, um, which is all stuff we've seen Kiritsugu struggle with. But she, but I think this really highlights that Shiro is a very different kind of person than Emiya Kiritsugu was. Um, and he reacts to the things in his life very differently. He's not the guy who shoots the plane with the rocket launcher and then weeps afterwards. 
Like there's something very disturbing about Shiro in his sort of almost machine-like process with which he's going about trying to be this like hero of justice. And that's so much of like you've we've had all those little bits and pieces set up in season one where you get that sense of there's something really unsettling about him. There's something like underneath everything that Shido is doing that feels wrong and Tosaka like is catching up to it and sort of putting those pieces together. He he she learns in the finale of season one that he is the more or less like the sole survivor. I don't think he's literally the sole survivor, but he's one of the only people who survived that disaster at the end of the last Holy Grail War. Thus like his sort of traumas run a lot deeper than I think she could have really imagined. Um and then now that all in season two comes to a head to see and this is like one of or maybe the only path that he can end up with is this sort of soul alone life of Archer going about constantly having to pick up after the messes that humanity makes for all of eternity effectively, because that's what being this like sort of undying hero of justice is that you never get to achieve that ideal. And that ideal leaves you like kind of alone and broken on a sword of hill or like a hill of swords. Right. Um, and that's like sort of the process you see unfold over the first half of season two, as you're wrapping up the caster stuff is really kind of building up to these moments of realizing this is where Shiro is headed. It is to this guy. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating. And I think, you know, we talked about this before, at you know UFO table, it comes time to do an ad, an actual adaptation of the visual novel Fate Stay Night. What are you going to do with that? And from what you've again, I have not read the visual novel yet, though I am very excited to. Um, but from what you've told me, it really does sound like if if you know you have already made Fate Zero, which they have, this is the actual story you should be telling as the sequel to it. It sounds like because mm-hmm. it seems like the Fate route would be repeating a lot of the exposition you already know and then, you know, really following up on Saber. But Saber is not the center of Fate Zero. She's important to it, but she is not the center in the way Kiritsugu is. And so when you do a story that is really about, you know, Shiro's internality and what he inherited from this man who adopted him and how that ideal kind of follows down through him, that's the story thematically I think you really Mm -hmm. want to follow up on if you did Fate Zero. And again, it just... Even if there's little things like, oh, Kotomine wasn't in this very much. He got killed. Oh, it's a very satisfying death because Lancer uh-huh. is awesome. I fucking love Lancer in this. Um, but, you know, even if there's little moments like that, overall it is such a, like, uh, taking those ideas and deepening them. Um, and I love that about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, this this is the story that is really specifically about Shido, right? Like, technically Tosaka is the, is the co-lead, and she's obviously very important. But like the fundamentally the correlationship here is between Shido and Archer, right? And like Tosaka's relationship to Shido is fundamentally through the lens of her having also this relationship with Archer, right? Because she has figured this out more or less. Like she knows probably by the end of the first season, there are multiple hints that she has figured out basically what is going on. You know, there's conversations in that date where Shido is like, you know, sort of saying something about like, he feels too short. I forget how the conversation comes up, but he's like, oh, I don't feel like I could, you know, be a bit taller. Like I feel too short. And then Tosak says like, oh, don't worry about it. Like don't, you'll fill out better um, and you'll get bigger. Like, trust me, like all those kinds of things where she's clearly like basically put it together. Um, but, and she also knows about Archer's past 
because she's seen his dreams because masters can see dreams of their servants and sort of the lives that they led. So she knows all of this. And so it's her relationship with Shiro is her trying to find this way to help this boy that she has a crush on to lead a life that is rewarding for himself because she sees that the path he's walking is one where there is no reward, where he gives other people happiness, but he never gets to be happy himself. This is, I think, one of the most remarkable things about this story is how fucking deep and totalizing the metaphor, the symbolism, the motif of the Unlimited Blade Works runs mm-hmm. through this story. And I have to admit, when I, I had heard this title obviously long ago, but when you hear the title Fate Stay Night Unlimited Blade Works and you don't know the game or the story... I would have expected that that was like a gibberish English title that meant nothing, (laughs) you know, the way Mm -hmm. like Attack on Titan does, frankly, you know, it's just, it's this crazy assemblage of words, like what is that going to mean? And of course, it's as far away from that as you can possibly get. It's like a extraordinarily evocative idea, because all of it keeps coming back to that, you know, the Unlimited Blade Works, which is the like reality marble that is the true power of Shiro Emiya and Archer is like his personality and ideal made manifest. And it is one of the, like, God, it is one of the most like teachable, perfect examples of like symbolism in storytelling mm-hmm. that I actually don't know if at a certain point it even is symbolism because it is just literally like, this is the magical manifestation of this person's damage. But it is such an interesting thing that runs through this season because that imagery is there in the first season. It's there in the theme songs and it's there in several moments where we see sort of inside Archer's mind, like those dreams. But then of course it is kind of the core setting of the second season is inside that reality marble, inside the, you know, just wasteland of the swords. And it is such an incredible potent piece of imagery and of writing. And it is something UFO table just absolutely runs with as, as an animation team of doing, you know, what that all looks like. It's incredible. Um, and as a piece of story, just all the ways we keep kind of circling back to the idea of what is the Unlimited Blade Works? What does it mean? What is, you know, that line when Junichi Suave first says it, I am the bone of my sword. That sounds yeah. cool, but it also, for all we know, could be, again, kind of gibberish. And it's not. It's like that's the, the core of the whole idea. And I think that's so cool. And it's, it you know, it's an extraordinarily smart piece of storytelling, as all of the Kinoko Nasu stuff we've been seeing is. Um but I just, it, it runs so deep in this story. It's really fascinating to me. Yeah, I think one thing I appreciate about Nasu as a writer is that he has the absolute perfect level of understanding of English. That he is far from a native <laughs> English speaker, um, but he knows enough to be like ambitious with what he does, right? So like that whole I'm the bone of my sword poem is written by him. Um, which, and we'll get into the poem stuff when we get, like talk in more in detail about the Unlimited Blade Works episodes um but it's like it's not gibberish english but it's like towing the line where it's something that no native english speaker would ever write that phrase i don't even think really it it is the phrase that he means to write i am the boat of my sword um but it works so well and unlimited blade works is exactly that like you would never no native english speaker would ever come up with that series of words but it actually makes sense. Like it is what it says on the box, right? It is works like a factory that makes unlimited blades. And that is what Shido's life is. That's what his inner life is. He is a man whose body is made of swords. Um, And he's like, you know, forever alone in this wasteland covered with like all the weapons and the swords and the things he has, he has ever seen in his life, which are the things he can replicate and make sort of, 
mimics of, you know? Um, and yeah, there is something like so powerful about that imagery and about the concept. And there's something like linguistically about the sort of almost uncanny nature of the of Nasu's English, where it is technically correct, like it grammatically makes sense. Um, but it's from such a different perspective because it is not sort of, you know, conventional English that it makes you as an English speaker have to think about what it means. And there's something I really love about that. Like it is just that perfect level of awkwardness to the the writing that it's like it's that step or two above Attack on Titan where Attack on Titan is just a nonsense phrase. It makes no sense. You can't really parse it grammatically. You're like, I have no idea what the fuck this means in relation to, to the show. Like I can tell what you're getting at and I could rewrite the title to make sense. Um, but this is like, no, it actually does make sense. There's nothing actually wrong with it. And then the way it's deployed in the show thematically and visually and symbolically is fucking chef's kiss perfect. You know what it reminds me of is actually uh, Lotus Juice, who does all the raps for the yes. Persona games. Lotus Juice is a guy who, you know, born in Japan. He moved to the United States, I think, when he was like eight or nine and lived there until college. So he does fluently speak English, but English is his second language. Um, and the way he uses English in his raps is amazing because no native speaker, I think, would put words together quite the way he does. Um, but it works 100%. But you get, I love seeing that when someone is playing with the language in a way that, you know, if you speak the language natively, you're not going to be playful with it in that same way, right? Um, mm -hmm. Kino Kodasu is not writing raps or rhymes here, but it is that, I think, same level of like, I love seeing some of these words in combination and it's really cool. And of course, you, you get that here with, there's both a Japanese and English version of the, the various chants, but they're all so fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. awesome. Do you do? Should we just get into it? Should we just talk about the yes. the like incantations and stuff? Yeah, of course um, we should. <laughs> yeah, so, we can jump around I'm, a little bit. That's okay. Yeah, because obviously this is all stuff that really comes up in the middle of the season, um, where you have you, there are two episodes this season called Unlimited Blade Works, um, which is more confusing in English than it is in Japanese. Because right. in English, it's literally two episodes just called Unlimited Blade Works. One has a period at the end. It's episode eight of this season, or episode 20 overall, is Unlimited Blade Works, period. And then the penultimate episode is Unlimited Blade Works without a period. But it's actually Mugen no Kensei, which is the Japanese phrase that means Unlimited Blade Works. Um, and it's that Mugen no Kensei Unlimited Blade Works thing is exactly what I talked about in the Fate Zero episode about Excalibur and the Sword of Promised Victory. It's the same thing, where it's written with kanji, that the kanji are Mugen no Kensei, which is Mugen means infinite, Ken is sword, and then that Sei means like to manufacture. So it's Kensei in that way is not like literally a word, those two kanji together, but its meaning is very clear. Um, and then it's pronounced as unlimited blade works. Um, so if you were confused about what unlimited blade works means, if you look at the kanji, it's very clear that it is a factory that makes infinite blades would be the most direct way to translate it. Um, but anyways, in that Unlimited Blade Works episode, that's where you get um, the full chants. And so there are two chants, and each chant has two different versions, an English version and a Japanese version. Archer has his own, and Shido has his own version of it. Um, I think what's interesting is that the English and Japanese versions are basically different. Like, you can see where there are similarities, but they are they mean different things. Um, so the English language chant that Archer uses that Junichi Suabe has 
by 2015 gotten very good at saying so he sounds a lot better <laughs> saying it in this anime than he does in the game um because he's had to say it a lot more because you know any game which archer appears in he has to say this whole thing every time he uses his super move um but his chant is i am the bone of my sword steel is my body and fire is my blood i have created over a thousand blades unknown to death nor known to life have withstood pain to create many weapons yet those hands will never hold anything so as i pray unlimited blade works um it's so good it's very cool it, it and it you know you can definitely parse together the meaning um but for me really i think the much more impactful one poetically because it thinks this is more impactful is the japanese one which i do i'm just going to read it out in japanese and then i'll read the english translation because i think the japanese sounds super fucking cool for this poem so the japanese version of that chant which again is going to mean something like fairly differently in the details is uh which that means, um, and I th I'm going to read this translation, and I'm actually going to take a little bit of a exception with how the translate trans translation translates one or two things. But the standard translation for that is, my body is made out of swords. My blood is of iron and my heart of glass. I have overcome countless battlefields, not even once retreating, not even once being understood. He was always alone, intoxicated with victory in a hill of swords. Thus his life has no meaning. That body was certainly made of swords. Um, which the one thing I want to take exception with with this translation is that in those first couple lines, it's in the first person. I think one thing I like about this poem, I think it's something that the English version um, keeps it basically always in the first person. The Japanese poem is ambiguous for the first half about who or like what the perspective is and then in the third or the third to last line of the poem it says kare no mono wa tsune hitori which moves it explicitly into the third person it's his body is or he is alone basically and then the last line sono kare wa kitto tsurugi direkteta is specifically his body was certainly made out of swords or that body is what the specific translation um, and so there's something about the chant that I have always interpreted. If you look at the Japanese version and read that closely, that I don't think this is like something that Archer came up with himself. I read this as this is the like legend that he left behind, right? This is the man, this wanderer who has left this sort of path of destruction in his wake, but also like salvation um, as this like one person who is alone, who has never retreated has never been understood, who is alone on this hill of swords, whose life has no meaning, and his body is made of swords. And this is like the legend of this man that has been passed down. And that's why I think it moves explicitly into this third person phrasing. Because when Shido says this, and we'll get into his version later, Shido's version is entirely in the first person, um, which is like a very like powerful difference in how it's written. But there's something about Archer's, it's so lonely, this phrasing. When it moves to Sonokara wa kito tsurigi that body was certainly made out of swords. Um, it is such a like dark phrase, like it feels so distant. Um, it's not even a person, it's that body was certainly made out of swords. Um, it's something I've always found like very powerful about the writing of this incantation, which all this, like this Japanese version, 
this is the poem that is read by Nin in the first season when she sees his dream. She reads out the Japanese version. So this I, is what you get. Well, and I wanted, to, I wanted to flag that, Sean, because your whole interpretation of it's like something that someone else has said about him, that's, I don't know about in the game, but in the anime, that is how we are introduced to it. Mm-hmm. Because we've only heard the English chant up until that point, and we haven't even heard the full thing, but we have heard Junichi Suabe say, I am the bone of my sword, and it's amazing. Yeah. Um, but then it's in, I think, episode eight, starts with a dream sequence where Reen recites the full Japanese chant. And I actually do think... I understand the choice. I think the official subtitles on Crunchyroll just give the English, like, Mm -hmm. I think that's wrong. I wish they did the, because what that's saying there is that's her talking in the third person, basically, because that's how the chant works. And I think it gives you, it tips the hand to say, this is what this is sort of actually doing here, right? Um, Is that it's it's someone speaking about the legend of this person. Um, whereas, and I think there's a reason why when Junichi Suabe does it, it's usually the English first person one until you get deeper into the story. Um, because I agree with your interpretation. And that's it's so haunting when it is Reen specifically saying it about him. And you don't know, it's early in the show, it's episode eight, you know, where are they going to go with this? It's such a memorable sequence. Yeah. And I think because one of the things here is this is all exactly, again, this is exactly the Excalibur sort of promise victory thing. Like it's written in the Japanese version, but he reads it with the English text for Junichi Suave or for the Archer character. So it's like what he is saying is I'm the bone of my sword. But what I'm the bone of my sword means is my body is made out of swords or this body is made out of swords. However you want to, again, that line written in Japanese is not it doesn't give you context for what body is being talking about. It just says body is made out of swords would be the most literal translation of it. Um, And so like, it's a thing where he's saying it, you know, like Saber says Excalibur, but in it's like core, what Excalibur means is the sort of promised victory. Excalibur is just like the, if you people know semiotics, it's like a signifier signified thing. Like it's the sign that indicates to the reader the real significant or signified meaning, which is sort of promise victory or the body is made out of swords. Um, Because that's also where I think I am the bone of my sword is kind of like a classic English to Japanese mistaken phrasing because it's like, it's really meant to be like swords are my bones. Um, But because like the nouns are flipped in order between English and Japanese grammatically, typically you would get something like this. So like, and I think it sounds cooler. I'm the bone of my sword. Even if I think technically the line is meant to be something more like swords are my bones or something to that effect. But well, I'm the follow-up line better. is steel is my body and fire is yeah. my blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does work in the other direction in so much as the swords are all projections of Shiro. Right. And he talks about mm-hmm. this in the final like confrontation with Gilgamesh is I'm not making anything. I can only do what is in my imagination. Uh, but yes, in the larger context of the poem, it makes sense the other way around. But hey, it's so cool. It's such a good poem. We get two completely different versions of it. Yeah, because let's th- then talk about Shido's version because it's really good. And she, so Shido, he never says the English version. Like, that's just not... Like, I don't even actually know where the English language text comes from. It must be in the game. I don't remember. Um, because I have up here from... This is from the Type Moon fandom wiki, if people are curious. I have it up here, points. too. Okay. And it is also what they use in the subtitles on the official version. Is when he says this, they give the the official English translation, with, with which ends with, my whole life was unlimited blade works, that whole thing. 
Yes, and so his version, which is mostly the same in English, I am the bone of my sword, steel is my body and fire is my blood. I have created over a thousand blades, unaware of loss, nor aware of gain, withstood pain to create weapons, waiting for one's arrival. I have no regrets. This is the only path. My whole life was unlimited blade works. Um, which is, you know, is pretty cool. It's nowhere near as cool as the Japanese version. The Japanese version of this one is fucking, I just love it. Um, which is um, which is to me, it's him. He is like claiming this for himself, right? The, the literal translation of that poem is my body is made of swords. My blood is of iron and my heart of glass. I have overcome countless battlefields, not even once retreating, not even once being victorious. The bearer lies here alone, forging iron in a hill of swords. Thus, my life needs no meaning. This body is made of infinite swords. Um, and that there's something very powerful about that last line as Shido says it. Because again, it, it shifts it from that body, Sonokadawa, to Konokadawa. This body is made of infinite swords. Um, and there's something so powerful about Shido. His journey, it's all, his journey in the season is represented in this poem. It's about him going from despairing over the path that his ideals are leading him to, to him like claiming it understanding that it might lead him to disaster but knowing that like it's not wrong to live your life for others um even if there's maybe like a cleverer way for him to go about this stuff that it's still his way of living his life there's something so powerful about him reaffirming it and claiming the unlimited blade works for himself in this show and i'm sure we'll get into it more later but that penultimate episode which is where this comes from it's the the big final fight with gilgamesh one of the most badass things anyone's ever done in the history of anime uh -huh. is this fucking 16-year-old boy who previously did not have many special powers. He could make steel objects slightly stronger, you know, sitting down in his basement, right? And now he is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the King of Kings, chanting this poem about how he's lost every time he's gotten in the ring, which he has so far in this season. He yeah. does not win a fight until he wins against Gilgamesh, which he really wins more in like a Fyrick victory sense and then lives because the Grail consumes Gilgamesh, right? Yeah. Um, and it is just one of the... And we'll talk about the animation and everything. It's incredible. But that is another... That episode has several stand-up and cheer moments. And I think Shiro doing the chant and getting to those final lines. Jesus Christ, it's amazing. Yeah, there's just something about like the... I think the elegance of the writing of those poems, particularly in Japanese, that... How, how much meaning I think there is in moving a couple of lines from being explicitly third person to explicitly first person there is yeah. so it's so powerful. But there's also something, you know, talking about like the symbolism of all this, um, you know, that first line, which uh, like my body's made of swords, that's like the hallmark line of it, right? It's the equivalent of I am the bone of my sword. Um, only it's much easier to tell what <laughs> my body's made of swords means than yes. I'm the of my sword. <laughs> um, but that notion, right, it's a very, like, defining idea for Shiro's life, right? He is a man whose body is made of swords. And there's, like, a lot that I think is packed into that meaning. Um, and one of it is that it is, like, part of the wall that he puts up between himself and everybody else, right? That anybody who gets too close to him gets 
cut because his body is made of swords. Um, you know, he's made of iron, although his heart is made of glass, so his heart is very fragile. Um, but nobody can get out that get at that heart because his body is made of swords. But I think there's something about for Unlimited Blade Works, it turns that on its head a little bit and also finds strength in it, right? That there is you know, there's a there's a lonely quality to being a man whose body is made of swords, but there's always also a strength there that you can fight for what you believe in or what you need, like the change you need to make in the world. And that's possible because your body is made of swords. Um, and it's like, you know, to use a very painful metaphor, it you know, it's a double-edged sword is the life that he leads, right? It is a thing that he can cut other people with, he can cut himself with. Um, but it's like, it's, it is the only thing he knows how to do as he describes it. It's the only magic or ability like allowed for Inyashiro is to make this inner world project it out into the world. All of his magic and everything he does is just an extension of his ability to take this battlefield of an infinite number of swords and put that out into the world because that's what's in his heart. And when I talk about feeling like uneasy with elements of the ending, I'm not just talking about the epilogue. I think it's consistent throughout the second half of this show where there is this, you know, basically the last six or seven episodes is this series of encounters starting with his duel with Archer, the episode called Unlimited Blade Works English, and then the episode called Answer. Both of those are just given in English, um, where he has the big duel with Archer and, and not just a duel, but, you know, an actual like intellectual character confrontation. And it kind of keeps coming back to, uh, you know, the, the, it's the it's the even so phrase, the sore demo, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same phrasing that is used in Unicorn Gundam, for instance, right? That Bonaji keeps saying of like, even so, even so, we're going to go with this. And it's, it's interesting because you do get a full-throated response from Shiro to Archer that Archer is moved by. Archer changes his kind of outlook a little bit and he winds up seemingly sacrificing his life and telling Shiro, hey, you're the only one who can defeat Gilgamesh, right? And then you have another confrontation with Shiro sort of, you know, between him and his other friends and then finally you have it in in his confrontation with Gilgamesh and then you have the epilogue where we kind of get it pushed one more time. So it's this series of I have seen the future. The future is almost indescribably bleak in the way Archer presents it, right? And it's part of why Archer doesn't claim the first person the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because he hates it. He resents it. And we'll talk about that in a moment here because I want to get into just what a bleak portrait they paint of that. But you have that and then you have Shiro being confronted with that. And I think for most people, certainly for me confronting this, I think you expect that the ending or the resolution or the rejoinder from Shiro is going to be no, my life doesn't have to turn out like yours. I can make different choices, etc. The, the Christmas Carol thing. I'm joking uh-huh. about Ghost of Christmas Future, but it is kind of that idea. It is with Christmas Carol being like one of the original time travel stories, right? It is like one of the it is a time travel narrative of seeing your future and being confronted with that. And those stories usually end with the protagonist making a change. To some degree, Shiro does because Shiro is in a much healthier place at the end of Unlimited Blade Works than I think Archer ever was because he's opened himself up to Reen and and other people to a certain extent. Um, But it is still ultimately him looking at Archer and saying, even so, I still believe in this. There's no amount of bleakness you can give me, Archer, that makes me, like that shakes this out of me because it is who I am. That's what those poems are about. That is that when you say my body is made of swords, it's like this is something that is 
unshakable from me. And it comes from that original foundational trauma of the fire of literally being like born in the flames of hell. There's an entire sequence that basically frames it through that prism of Archer, like showing him again in a very Christmas Carol fashion, like here is the ghost of your Christmas past hero. And like, this is hell. Uh, and Shiro seeing that and, and what did Kiritsugu's kindness uh, and and just joy in saving Shiro there. What did that actually mean to him? Why has he embraced this ideal, even if it was not originally his? And it keeps coming back to this, I, I can't actually shift it. And it's, it's instead of taking like, I'm going to go a different direction than you, Archer, it's kind of almost a, I'm going to double the fuck down on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is what is so confrontational and interesting about it in that it it forces you to see, as it forces Archer... To see the like actual value in this very beautiful ideal that Shiro has, and the also like very real like interpersonal danger to it, um, and I think that's what makes it so provocative and makes the last half of this show and this season like really unsettled in fascinating ways. Where I just was never quite sure where the thematic die was going to fall because it was so breaking. I think the rules of fiction like this for me at least. Yeah, and I think like really where a lot of this stuff starts coming into much clearer focus in this season is actually a little bit before this stuff because I think it's one of, for me, the best scenes and like the best episodes of the show is the episode where um, all the Elia stuff happens, right? And there's uh, that moment where Shido and Reen are like up in the balcony looking like they've snuck in. They're looking down. The fight between Berserker and Gilgamesh is basically over. Um, and Gilgamesh cuts Ilya's eyes because he's going to go rip her heart out because he wants the grail. Um, and they have just, like, the last time you saw Nina and Shudo, Nina was telling him, like, do not fucking do anything because you are powerless. Neither of them have servants at this point. There is nothing they can fucking do. He's just like, whatever you do, do nothing. And as soon as Shudo sees that happen, like... Reen has to physically tackle him to the ground, hold him down and muffle him as he's like screaming and his eyes are bugging out to try to keep him from interfering. And then even that ultimately doesn't work because eventually he breaks free and still tries to have a fight with Gilgamesh, which is insane. You know, there's absolutely nothing that Shido could do. He doesn't know how to use fucking unlimited blade works or jack shit. Like the most he could do is make a couple of knives um, with his magic power. And that's like as far as he could go. He doesn't, and he doesn't know anything about how his healing shit has been working, but his healing shit wouldn't be working. So if Gilgamesh had wanted to, he would have been dead in a literally a blink of an eye. Um, and so after that point, they bury Ilya, and at the grave, there's this conversation between Reen and Shido that's incredibly upsetting, where, like, Shido is just fundamentally doesn't understand, like, what Dean is really trying to tell him about, like, how empty and hollow he is and how there's something about the way that Shido seems to place no value whatsoever on his own life in this very unthinking robotic fashion where like when you weigh things on the scales of you're trying to choose something for anybody your own ability to survive would be a thing that weighs really fucking heavily on your scales if you're trying to make a choice um and then it would have to be you'd have to be able to really do something incredible to balance that out of like, oh, if I could save this entire group of people, maybe I'd be willing to give up my life. 
that would be a thing that you could understand. But it's like, you're not going to be able to save anybody. It's already fucking over. Elia's dead. Um, and yet you're still willing to just throw your life away for what is literally nothing. And Shiro just seems unable to grasp any of this. And, like, I think that's where Tosakin fully understands that, like, for Shido, the concept of, like, happiness and his own personal satisfaction and things like that have no meaning. That he's, like, so far gone from that point. He's so ripped up with his, like, survivor's guilt. He's so twisted around his own idealism. Um, and that's what she literally describes the way he lives his life. Is, she uses the word ibitsu. It's like it's a twisted or, like, way of living your life. Um, and there's like, if there's seemingly no way that he can change and like Tosaka, her whole mission is try to find some way to get him to be able to love himself. And with this show, it's like an open question of, will he ever be able to get to that point? But I think that for me, that whole sequence, which is a really fantastic, I like adaptation and condensation of some different scenes from the game, um, really like brings home and shoves you face to face with like, just how fucked up Shida really is. Like, it goes, I think, a lot deeper than you would think up to that point. Oh, yeah, because it's... You go from he is, like, pathologically unable to say no to people at the beginning of the show. He's fixing everyone's equipment. He's doing stuff for Shinji, even though he knows Shinji is bullying him and bullying everyone because Shinji's a piece of shit. All of that. But that's... That's not the worst thing in the world. That's being a high schooler who's not standing up for yourself to exactly as you say here. It's like it's it's suicidal effectively when you are yeah. running at Gilgamesh after seeing him tear apart Berserker, who this is another thing just to say, like, I think the beginning of season two really unsettles expectations in so much as Unlimited Blade Works starts. And maybe this is different if you've seen like the fate route. But for me, this was my introduction to all of these versions of the servants, right? And Unlimited Blade Works, the first servant they encounter is Berserker, who seems impossible to defeat, right? Like, mm -hmm. Saber does the... F just Saber rips this guy apart, and then he just heals, right? And it's like, oh, God, what are we... That's a, like, open question throughout season one is they keep, like, mentioning Berserker and being like, we'll figure that out later. <laughs> that seems like an impossible task. Caster seems like an impossible task, all of that stuff. And, of course, they don't wind up having to deal with Berserker because Gilgamesh... Doesn't even lift a finger. Does nothing to like destroy. He doesn't. He doesn't get out. Aya. He doesn't have to do anything really, other than stand there and let some of his swords come out, right? And just tears this thing apart. And that is the moment when Shiro is like, "I'm gonna go fight that guy." That's suicidal, uh -huh. right? Like that is effectively wishing for death. Um, and you're right. It is. It is twisted. And I want to highlight here in these these two episodes. This is episodes three and four. You're talking about. Um, Kana Ueda is phenomenal in those episodes yes. as, as Tosaka Rin. The scene that you were describing earlier where she is literally having to like physically restrain Shiro. This is when Gilgamesh is killing Ilya and she's like holding him down, wrestling him to the ground and he is screaming and she is just like begging him like, no, don't. There is like a panic in her voice that is like visceral and mm -hmm. uncomfortable and you just feel it. And then the flip side of like the the anger and confusion she has towards him in the in the subsequent episode when they're at the grave it's the same thing where it's like it's a performance that just feels so raw and real it's like she's in the room with you it's like overall i would say in the last maybe you know six or seven episodes she fades into the background a little bit not the performance but the character although she has a phenomenal moment with archer in the penultimate episode that is also just peak kanueda um but i think in these two that's just like oh my god this what a performance this is incredible 
Yeah, and then it's something also like if you know, like what you now know, Jonathan, of like that she has actually like had a crush effectively on Sheeta the whole time. Like right. she has this memory of seeing him try over and over like an idiot to do this like high jump or whatever, and it's like a, a kind of a very cherished memory of Tosaka of her in middle school watching this boy do this, and that's actually where she knows him from. It's not the Sakura stuff, um, but some of that is more explained more directly in the. Um, game because you see that whole scene from her eyes. If you see that whole scene from her eyes through the eyes of Shido, who's experiencing it because he's having her dream because they're connected magically. Um, but anyways, like, but that's where you realize like some of like what Tosaka is doing there is like she has like a much more she has such a powerful bond with Shido to a point that like Shido doesn't really know yet at this point um, that that he means a lot to her. And so, yes, there's something I think like Uedakana gets so much of that desperation where like Tosaka's how ripped up she is inside at seeing this boy who she knows to be like very noble and very compassionate and like stubborn and has all these like, but stubborn in this way of like, he's never going to give up to try to help people. And they're all things that she admires in him because it's all kind of the stuff that she wants to be able to do that sometimes she suppresses because she needs to be a mage or whatever. Um, and, you know, being a mage means being a fucking bastard, uh, you know, is everything that we have seen in this world. And so seeing him so cavalierly jumping into his own death over and over and over and over again. But in some of the other scenarios, there were like things you could do to explain it of like, oh, you know, he never really considered the idea that Tosaka would kill him, which she was never going to kill him. Um, you know, but like, that's why he shows up to school like an idiot in the first season or, you know, yeah, he goes and runs off to fight Ryder or whatever. Um, but that's like a very desperate situation and they don't know what's going on yet. So it's not clear how dangerous it is. Like this is, you know, 100% there's nothing you can fucking do. And yet you're still trying to jump down there. Like there is no excuse at that point that Shido can lean on. And, you know, she is able to kind of bring him back a little bit from like the mania he sort of expresses at uh Ilya's grave where he's he's like seems just completely broken um but she's never but like with Shido's response to people when they kind of bring him back a little bit to himself is always something like he says you're probably right about that it's like he intellectually understands that the way he lives his life is wrong I think that he intellectually isn't trying to kill himself. I think if you asked him intellectually, he would understand that him dying would be pointless and it would cause other people to suffer and he hates it. But like deep, deep down inside in his like emotional core, he just places no value on his own life at all. And so it's like when he is emotionally pushed in any way, that's a thing that doesn't factor in for him, which is bad. <laughs> it's like, and it's, it's a thing that I think makes Shiro a really interesting character is it takes a thing, an idea like the virtues of like bravery and self-sacrifice and stuff that we take for granted in these kinds of stories and pushes it to this really extreme place that really makes you, I can think second guess and question um, like how much of that is the virtue and how much of that is a byproduct of some like deeper trauma or some like bigger mistake. This idea that, you should be so willing to sacrifice yourself um, either in, in like very dramatic ways, like literally sacrificing your own life or for us in our real lives in more mundane ways where you give up as like a teacher. It's a thing you have to think about all the time is like how much of your life are you willing to give up to this thing? Um, and how much is that like kind of eating away at you? Um, and, it, and Shido is this kind of 
fascinating character by which you see what that mindset is when it goes to its most kind of horrifying extremes. Yeah, it's, you know, as obviously (laughs) crazy as this show gets, and it is, you know, dealing with insane magic that the mind can barely comprehend. I do think what it's describing in the pathology of Shiro is a very real phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it is a phenomenon around guilt and around trauma and around all sorts of things. It reminded me there was this there's this moment in like my own kind of mental health therapy journey I had in the last year or two that like uh, I think about every day because it blew my mind. I was reading this book by a, by a mental health professional who I who I uh, follow online, and it had this piece of advice about like you know, like adult romantic relationships, like you know committed like you know long term marriage partnerships. Like it was a piece of like it, not advice, but like a therapist like giving their opinion on like. What does it actually like take to like actually engage with another person on that level? One thing she said is you kind of have to answer two questions for yourself. Do you think other people are worth more than you? And do you think other people's feelings are worth more than yours, are more important than yours? And I went, well, yeah, that's, of course mm-hmm. they are. That's, yeah, yes, yes to both. And then on the next page, I said, if you said yes to both, you're wrong. <laughs> Here's why. And I went, oh, no, oh, no. And I had like a moment and I like in my next like session with my uh, my therapist who I meet with every couple weeks, I was talking about this and like, that blew my mind. I just had never thought about it that way. And I, was, like, I legitimately had like kind of gone through life thinking that, and I'm not saying I am like Shiro Emiya um, and that soon I will summon the Unlimited Blade Works, but it was like a significant like, oh, that's actually, that kind of messed with me to see that idea kind of put forth. You know, it all kind of goes back to the, this is a, I'm going to use an airplane metaphor because I was on two flights in the last 24 hours of like the, you can't put on someone else's oxygen mask until you put on yours. That's what they always tell mm-hmm. you. And it's a very practical piece of advice because if you try to put on your child's oxygen mask and you asphyxiate, you're both dead, right? Yeah. And so uh, it's a very practical thing to, to think about. And of course, if you do not have any stability in your own emotions and your own feelings, you can't do jack shit for anyone else. Um, but I think that failure that Shiro has, even though, again, it's very intellectually easy to understand, right? That if you explain it that way, if you use the oxygen mask metaphor, it is unimpeachable logic, right? Like it just makes, it is like two plus two equals four. It's very clear. But in your gut, there's still something that's like, yeah, but I want to put the oxygen mask on my kid first, right? I want to believe that this other person's feelings are more important than mine. Because sometimes it's hard to actually do that inside yourself, right? And I think that's the difficulty and it's the very understandable on a certain level. That's the thing about Shiro is that they, I think, you know, Nasu in this whole fiction created a scenario by which it's not hard to understand why Shiro is the way he is. It actually does make sense, especially when you have Fate Zero fleshing that whole backstory out for us, I think. Absolutely. I mean, this is all stuff of like, like fundamentally, this is all the stuff that like really has like made me a really big fan of this story because like because this whole storyline with Shido, I think he is like a really relatable character. Obviously, he takes it to this big extreme that's like much bigger than almost anybody will have lived. Obviously, there are people who have like really powerfully tragic and traumatic histories and stuff. Um, but for most people, it's much more mundane than that. Um, but I think it is a really relatable thing and 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 it is when i originally played the game like it made me think about myself a lot and it's a thing like again as a teacher like i think about all the time with myself with other teachers because i think it's a very common mindset um of that like all these other things are so much more important than you 
Um, and then at a certain point, I think it can become kind of pathological where you so diminish your own significance um, that it is it is it clearly becomes hypocritical because it's like if you're like valuing people's happiness and their comfort and their like their ability to live their lives and stuff like that. Well, you're just taking that away from yourself at a certain point to try to do that so much for other people. And it's like, like, are you what are you doing in sort of like the moral or ethical scales of the world? Um, and what is there for like yourself if you're giving so much away to these bigger things, especially when those bigger things will never be solved because they're not the kinds like with Shiro's thing, you know, being a, like one high school teacher, you cannot solve all the evils of the world that your students live through or that the education system has and shit like that. Like it's just way bigger than any individual could deal with. Um, and so, yeah, like I think all of Shiro's stuff in this show is incredibly relatable and has always made me like, is, is stuff that I struggle with all the time. Um, Cause I think one other part of it is also there's a specific edge of it that is like particularly masculine where I think there's like a kind of like masculine pathology of like, self-sacrifice of in self-sacrifice in a like literally like you give your life for somebody else like you like you lose your life right as in like oh if if like emergency were to happen would i be willing to trade my survival for the survival of this person or these two people or like how many would it take right and i think like there is a way in which you're socialized particularly if you're a man where it's like you're meant to so devalue your own life and be like, if if there is somebody else, and then it's so gendered where obviously it's like, if it's a woman, even if you understand like how like those would be very sexist assumptions, still it's, you're so socialized to believe it. That's like, well, of course, if it was a female, then I would prioritize their survival over my own. Um, and I think like, that's like such an instinctual in your gut, it is pounded into you for your whole life, that that's one of the things I also think about a lot with Shido is that like how much of that is like actually noble and how much of that is actually really fucked up. It's like the maritime tradition of women and children first, right? Yes. Like on the Titan, mm -hmm. which was not actually followed that frequently on, on maritime law. We know about it because of the Titanic, which is a notable case where it was followed uh, very strictly. And so the majority of casualties on the Titanic were men. Um, a, a lot of women, obviously, and children died too because most people didn't survive. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of... And, and of course, this is playing with the militaristic side of that, right? Yes. I mean, I think one of the provocative... And I want to get into this. Let's talk about the dark version of this, the Archer. Because uh -huh. Archer is effectively suicidal. He wants to kill... He wants to kill Shiro because he wants to kill himself. And this is the yes. only way he can do it. Um, you know, it is not a, in the first season, you might think this is some kind of like interpersonal, that these two personalities just don't mix. It's a, it's self-hatred made extremely literal, right? It is yes. a, again, this whole story is like a, a, a very psychological internal story that through the fantasy elements is made manifest and made literal. Mm -hmm. But Archer's whole thing is that he becomes a hero. He does in life, do the thing. He becomes a hero of just Segi no Mikata, which I was uh, alternating between two different copies of this I had, one that said hero of justice and one that said champion of justice. <laughs> it's bothering me. Um, the champion of justice one, really stupid. But anyway, um, 
we talked about that before. Maybe you can expand on that later if you want. It, it literally means like champion of justice, but that doesn't really get the, the meaning across. Yeah, but anyway. al- ally of justice would be the very literal translation, but it's like that's so awkward. And what it means is like hero or superhero, you know, like a power ranger is a Seiji yes. no Mikata, that kind of thing. Yeah, Shiro wants to be... It's a, it's a term no adult would use, right? Like, it's yes. a term, you know, like if you were a lawyer and walked into the courtroom and said, Judge, I am the Segi no Mikata. They'd be like, get the fuck out of here. Get to the defense place. Just you, you do your job, idiot. Right? I mean, and there's a literal yeah. moment of that in the epilogue when Shiro meets um, Waver Velvet, now Lord Elmeloy II, who is like, yes. that is a really stupid dream. But... And then I, lo- I love that moment because Waver also has enough backstory to, to like understand where he's coming from. But anyway, we'll get to that. Um, but he does become, as much as he can, this hero of justice. But we see in the little glimpses of like what that meant. It meant like military might. Like there's this the scene where he like makes the pact with the counterforce, with the universe. Um, it's like he's in like military garb and he's got a gun and all this stuff, right? When we see him, you know, and then of course what happens is he makes this pact that his his life winds up being failed because he is betrayed and winds up being hung and like executed for someone else's crime. It's incredibly dark imagery and like idea. But then he has made this pact with the counterforce and he becomes basically an agent of it to keep coming in and like putting humanity back on the correct path by killing the people who need to be killed. And so he does become a hero of justice but th- exclusively through violence, which is kind of like Emi Akiritsugu to the nth degree, right? It's that same idea that we kind of come back to again. Um, and so it is like kind of that, you know, violent, we, we consider it noble masculinity, but it's really violent masculinity made manifest to the nth degree as like this cosmic power that he becomes. And it is really like dark and disturbing. Like I think when you see Archer's whole story, and why he has this need to just like, I want to erase my entire life. This was all a mistake. You understand it. You understand how like that mm-hmm. can spin out into the most disturbing version of this. Yeah, no, it's it's super fucked up. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like details there that I think are very smart in terms of um, Shido. Yeah, Shido being depicted like a soldier. Like, I don't think you're meant to understand that he has, like, literally joined an army of a country, but he sort of styles himself as a soldier, which to me is, like, the main thing conceptually that separates him from Kiritsugu, who is, like, Kiritsugu was an assassin or an operative, you know. Shido is a soldier. Like, that's so his personality. That is, like, who he is. Um, And it's, like, he's just a soldier that doesn't have a general that's commanding him. He's just a soldier who... Um, he who's following some sort of ideal and that's the thing that's supposed to be pushing him on and driving him forward and then eventually that what that path leads him to is that he becomes a soldier of the world he gives himself up to these kinds of cosmic forces and as you said Jonathan he is sent as a he calls himself a cleaner effectively um, he is sent to any instance in human history where the, the scales are being tipped too far to one side or the other where the proper course of human history is being messed with. Um, and then he goes and he deals with that situation, which mostly involves killing people. And one thing that they, you know, you don't see it so much, but they say is like, and you know, sometimes those people are bad and sometimes maybe they weren't bad because being good or evil on that sort of scale is kind of irrelevant. Like you need to like put back, 
like the history back on its proper course, you're not only killing like quote unquote the bad guys. And you they even show some shots where like he's killed some child soldiers and stuff, you know? Um, because that's what it is to be this cleaner for the counterforce, is he's not really fighting for something that is good. He is fighting for like stability. He's like he's like an agent of the status quo, very literally. Um, and that's where his ideals lead him. Like he fails to sort of escape that and work for some sort of higher good, which I think is what Shido ultimately wants, but he can't find a way to do it, which I think is, again, one of the things about his path that's so relatable because I think that's what everybody's trying to do. We all are trying or want to find some way to serve a higher purpose, whether you phrase that literally in a religious sense or just like moralistically, you're trying to do something good in the world. And yet... Again, this, I have to think about this through the lens of a teacher. You're constantly actually just reinforcing a lot of the same injustices and inequalities that exist in the status quo that you are a part of. And it's like, you know, like there's not really much I can do to stop the like school to prison pipeline. I just get to stare it in the face every single day because of the job I work at. Right. Um, and that's like that's the life that that's the place that Shido ends up at if he becomes Archer is to do that for eternity, where he is literally put outside the concept of time. Um, If he had succeeded in killing Shido, it would have changed nothing. Um, It's the thing that Saber points out, and Archer's like, well, it it technically might happen. It wouldn't fucking happen. (laughs) Like, Archer exists, like, outside the concept of, of, like, a single timeline, even. He is, like, a conceptual being at this point. Um... So, yeah, like him, if he had killed Shido, there's probably a timeline where the Archer did kill Shido and it wouldn't have fucking changed the goddamn thing. Um, he is doomed to walk this path for literally all of eternity. Yes. Um, and of course, this is what makes the final half of this show, like I was saying earlier, so dynamic is you are presented with this just almost impossibly bleak kind of following the logic out to its nth degree version of this ideal and then, you know, Shiro is confronted with that. Shiro totally understands it intellectually mm-hmm. and emotionally, I think. And then it is, well, what is the answer to that? Is the answer to say, then I abandon my ideal? Well, that's maybe even worse. And that's even, I think, the conclusion Archer comes to in the end of the series, right? Um, and so then it becomes, well, well, what, what do we do with that? And I think that is such, that is where the final couple of episodes feel so dynamic and also kind of like thematically provocative and unresolved because I don't think there is a single good response to that question once you've raised it. And I think the show is, and and Kinokanasu is smart to not try to like give you a pat anime answer of like, if I just believe in friendship hard enough, it'll mm-hmm. be okay. Archer, you didn't have enough friends. I will have more friends. I feel like that's the common, you know, like we've, uh, one of our favorite games of all time is Persona 4. Persona 4, the ending is the weakest probably part of that game because it broaches a question that is similarly big to this. And it its answer really is basically the friendship is magic answer. And it isn't satisfying to the level of like philosophical intrigue raised and i think this is in part because i don't think we come down on one single easy response maybe shiro's path will be more positive than archer that is a possibility maybe it will be exactly as dark and terrible and maybe he's made peace with that and that's the only thing he can do 
but maybe there's something else that we haven't seen in this version of the story. Does that feel like a good summary of sort of like what we do in the final half here, Sean? Yeah, and then I think I want to like to just zoom in on the moment in the first Unlimited Blade Works episode of the encounter with Archer. There's the and you took some screenshots of this. I do. Um, I have that, all that I pulled up as well. Um, where you have the big standout sequence that's very iconic. There's like a bunch of lines from this that get quoted all the time, particularly the Japanese community. Um, that this is when Last Stardust starts playing. Um, you know, like Shido has like he was cowed a little bit, and then this is him sort of like bringing himself back together. And at the end of the whole sequence is when he says like, you know, it was my mind that was broken or like my resolve that was broken, um, not my body. Um, he, you know, this is when he pushes things back. This is where one of the, the lines that gets quoted all the time by the Japanese community, this is if you follow any streamers like VTubers and stuff, you will see this in the Japanese chat constantly um, <laughs> because it's just a very popular line is Sonosaki wa Jigoku Dazo. Which is that's hell. Yours has that's hell you're walking into. There's lots of ways you can translate it. Like it literally means like it's hell past that point or like beyond there. It's hell. Um, in like Japanese internet, like language is often used if you're watching like a streamer playing, say like Dark Souls or something, and they're gonna about to go fight Ornstein and Smog. You maybe would like spam that in the chat. It's like Sorosaki wa Jigokudaza. Like it's hell past there. Um, <laughs> but you, anyways, but in the show. In the show, you have this sequence where it's first Shido says it to his younger self who's walking into the fire. Because, right, one of the things with Shido is it's not just the trauma of, like, him being in the fire. It's also the trauma of him walking past all these people and not being able to save them. It's the thing he says all the time. It's like he has the survivor's guilt of that, like, he couldn't save those people. And so he says that to his, that kid version of himself that goes walking into the fire um, and then it does the same sequence, and now it's Archer saying it to Shido. It's hell past there. Um, that's when Shido responds with, this is what you forgot. I admit that at first it was just admiration, but the heart of it all was a wish. The wish for this hell to be undone, the unfulfilled wish of a man who only wanted to help others, but who lost everything in the end. And this is where you then get the reveal um, that... Uh, Avalon, the scabbard of Excalibur, is embedded into Shido's body, the same way it was with Iris Feel. And that is how Kiritsugu managed to miraculously save Shido's life, is he put that scabbard in him. It is also why he was able to summon Saber, is he himself was the catalyst, because the catalyst was in his body the whole time. And obviously it's the reason why when he gets fucked up by Berserk or whatever, he's able to heal and everything. Um, and that revelation in that moment and like the music and the way they show it is so powerful and is one of those those pieces of symbolism i think is so potent to me the idea of that shido's his it ties into everything right his body is made of swords um his whole life is swords like it's like it's what his ability is um but his dream is to be a scabbard. His dream is to be a sheath. That's what the wish is, is to be Avalon. And it's probably not a thing he could ever actually be able to do. It's out of the reach of any individual person. But that's still the thing to be strived for. Um, and like that is the thing that gives it meaning, right? It's that hope. It's that one wish. And I, th I think like the answer that Unlimited Blade Works has um, for like why is... Shido's still going to walk this path. Why can't he walk away from it? Is this thing of like, the ideal is meaningful in and of itself, you know, even if it means he ends up at this horrible place in that horrible life, like 
the ideal is still one worth striving for because as he says multiple times it's beautiful and that enough that's that makes it worthwhile and i think it's the thing that is hard to argue with shido is that you know maybe he is like fake you know all these things and his experiences like his dream of being a hero of justice are all like inherited it's not something that like is inherent to him it's not something that he has come up with it's all him trying to emulate what he saw in kiritsugu um and it's also something that can't actually ever be accomplished really but still it is valuable to pursue it and that it's not wrong to do so um and i think there's something really powerful in that of that like this is what it does for archer it reminds you of yourself right it reminds you of like right like that those more childish notions are still important you can't let go of all of that or you lose the will to fight just it's kind of like you know don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good right just because you can't achieve the ideal doesn't mean it's not worth fighting to strive for it even if it's never going to get you really the thing that you ultimately wanted yeah it's because his foundational primal memory is Kiritsugu rescuing him. But as Shiro tells us, we get our first kind of version of this in season one. We get more of it here. It's not just that, hey, this man rescued and then adopted me. It's I saw in his face this unbelievable joy and satisfaction. This like mm -hmm. almost religious ecstasy of he was able to save someone. And that is what he latched onto was like, can I achieve that? Can I achieve that feeling of in saving this person, I have like truly like saved the world, saved myself, right? And yeah. this this scene just did so much for me because obviously there is the the revelation about Avalon being and the way they visualize it in the anime is like it's the heart of his magical circuits. It's like we follow mm -hmm. down the circuits in his body, and Avalon is like at the center of that. So it is literally his heart, effectively. Um, and obviously that provides a good plot explanation because I had been wondering throughout season one, how exactly did he... My my first assumption was that like Kiritsugu had left Avalon in a box down there and we were going to see that eventually. But that would feel like Kiritsugu hadn't planned very well if he just left Avalon in one of those boxes. Um, but he did not. Uh, so like how did he summon Saber? And of course, how does he keep surviving? Because I don't think we, we went through them all. But he suffers a uh, crazy number of mortal blows in the first like 12 episodes of Unlimited Blade Work. Shiro just keeps getting cut up. And he keeps yeah. almost dying and then kind of miraculously healing to a degree that even like Tosaka is like, man, you're healing really fast, right? Uh, so you have all of that and it kind of fills in that. And it's a very nice plot explanation. But it's an even better thematic explanation of Kiritsugu didn't just find this kid in the fire and pick him up. He found this dying kid in the fire and he used the only tool he had left, which at the end of that, you know, violent, wrenching journey in Fate Zero the only thing he had left. He had no guns, he had no swords, he had this tool of healing, basically. And he was able to use that, and, and being able to use that redeemed his entire life in that moment. And that is the joy that Shiro sees and Shiro yes. inherits. And that is why, that more than anything, is why he can never just give up on this dream because he knows it's real. He doesn't think it's real, he, he saw it. It's why he exists. It's why he is alive. It's why he's breathing, right? Because he knows there is something true to this. Um, and so when he says it's beautiful, it's not a platitude. I, you know, it, it really is true to him. And it is something that Archer has forgotten 
But I think when Archer sees it, Archer is almost fighting himself, but he realizes it's it's true. Because Archer's like, I see now. The scabbard is our heart. That's the first time he like refers to him in this hero with like a a pronoun like ours. Um, yeah. And it's 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 so striking. It's such a beautiful plot turn. Yeah, because this is also where you get another line that is very well known, although it gets kind of memed on in the English community because I think it's kind of hard to translate it in an elegant way. This is also where, in this argument, um, he says to Archer, um, which means, like, like the fact that... It usually gets translated as something like the fact that you're correct doesn't mean that you're right. Something like yes. that, right? That is like, while Archer's logic is technically accurate, it's like, that's all it is. It's not true with, like, a capital T. Like, what Shido is striving for isn't a sort of, like, the the correct way to live a life. He's trying to find, like, the right way to live a life. A way to live, like, a life that's bigger than himself. Um, and Archer is trying to sort of stamp that down with all the regrets that he has, you know? Um, yeah, I, I was watching this, like I said, with two different sets of subtitles. There's the official Crunchyroll subtitles, and then I also had some fan subs that I had on my iPad. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say, this is one instance where I actually think the fan subs did it better, because the official translation is that line of, just because you're correct doesn't mean you're right. And in the fan subs, they wrote, uh, being right isn't everything. And I actually think that's a better, I don't know if it's, it's not a more accurate translation strictly, but I do think it gets the idea across in English, maybe a little more clearly, of saying mm -hmm. like, just because you logically intuited like this is correct doesn't mean that is everything, which is what you're kind of explaining here, Sean. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it's definitely one where I think that is like the much more naturalistic English language version to use because, yeah, in Japanese, um, like it's it's a it's a thorny line in Japanese anyways because it's like it, it makes you sort of like take a step back and think about it. Um, but also I think there's something about the way you can e so easily transform adjectives into nouns grammatically in Japanese that makes that line work that when you try to keep that in English I've just I've seen a bunch of translations that typically if you're trying to preserve that it just makes the line feel very weird um but yes uh it's like this whole debate you know that Shido is having with himself um Archer you know it's it is very much like the core of what this whole story of Unlimited Blade Works is about right um there's something about it I think particularly now that I've like encountered it you know, multiple times now over like basically a 10 year. Yeah. Like about a 10 year period of my life at this point, like that, I think you, for me, I start to see like different sides of it where it's like, as you get older, it's a little bit easier to fully be with like Archer here because you've lived longer and you've seen more of like that, that like bright eyed childish optimism or whatever is not always going to bring about the conclusions that you want or that you think you should get. Um, but there is, um, like Archer has an incredible line. I don't know if you, it's in your screenshots or not, but where he says something like how cruel all of this is to be like, it's like looking into an old mirror. Oh, there was someone like this once. There was a boy like this once. It's one of my favorite lines from the series. Um, and I think it, it's a line that like hits me very differently now than it did when I originally played the game. This idea of looking at a mirror at your own younger self and seeing that, there maybe is something right about that much more childish outlook you used to have. Yeah. And this is also where we, you know, Shiro in his dialogue directly brings into the text the entire, you know, idea of the literalization of fighting against yourself, of realizing like, 
that, you know, I can't allow myself to be beaten by you. Because if I allow myself to be beaten by you, I am beaten by everyone because you are me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a this is an opposite self. He he has to fight in the same way that Archer kind of has to fight him, right? Um, if you if you saw yourself at a younger age, I don't care if you're a, a heroic spirit or not, you might want to kill yourself. <laughs> yes. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. I would not want to be stuck in a room with teenage Sean Chapman. It's like yeah. one of us would be dead <laughs> within five minutes. <laughs> I also just want to say about this entire scene, this is where you get the AMA song Last Stardust. And this is a scene I definitely had to watch multiple times. I first watched it on Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll I, this is my the thing that disappoints me most about Crunchyroll is most of the time their subtitles don't have anything for songs, which disappoints me. Um, and so I did. I, then I went and watched the whole half, second half of this episode again on my fan subs, which did have subtitles for the song. Um, songs are one of the harder things, like for me to understand in Japanese, because you elongate the vowels and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, just watched it over again, focusing on the song, and the scene became even richer for me. It's such a good use of an insert song, and those lyrics are such a perfect compliment to what is going on in the scene you know as the scene begins it's the lyrics this is the translation suddenly i reached the end of my dream where i picked up the pieces of my faded memories love tenderness i thought i'd thrown it all away but if i can find what i've lost on the way then even if i'm destined to be wounded my heart still harbors hope dance my last stardust dust to dust ash to ash uh, may my broken wish shine eternal. That's like the first verse in chorus. Uh, and then you get another uh, verse later on in the scene. But like, just again, such a beautiful version of a, a, a use of an insert song where I think you can watch the scene once just focusing on the dialogue and watch the scene again focusing on what Aimee is singing over it. And I think you get another perspective on the scene that just enriches it all and that to me is kind of the ideal of there's you know insert songs can be just really fucking cool and you get Mm -hmm. just a really great scene where like it's very synesthetic and then there's that plus you focus on what the singer is saying and it's like oh this is enriching this scene for me and i to me this gets like all of it yeah it's yeah it's just that whole episode is just one of the best episodes of anime ever um yeah it's just every every you know it's one of those where like they skip the opening theme which is a shame because brave shine's so good but you get that like immediately oh shit with that episode because you get like a little opening and then it like just the opening title pops up famously night unlimited blade works with like a boom sound and you're like yeah. oh shit okay we're like th- this is going to be a very special episode of unlimited blade works you can tell right away yeah Okay, and you know what? I do have to read the second verse here because this is when Shiro is saying I can't be defeated by myself or I can't be beaten by you. It's even if I'm destined to be wounded, my heart still harbors hope. Goodbye, Judas. Sayonara, Judas. That's a great lyric. And Mm -hmm. turn to dust, dust to dust like my past weakness. My heart is made of cracked glass, but yet it harbors a long forgotten warmth. Dance, my last stardust, etc., etc. That's, God, this is a good song. It's such a good song. I love how it brings in... You know, pieces of the actual Unlimited Blade Works chant there. Um, it does have the lyric in English, Brave Shine, several times just to connect mm-hmm. those. It's so cool. Yeah, it's great. And then one other piece of the episode, this is like, I think, a really smart piece of adaptation, is this is where they start putting in a little bit of stuff to give Saber more of an active presence here. Um, because if I remember correctly in the game, a lot of the stuff that she comments on where she starts having this moment of self-reflection as well. I don't think that's in the game. I might be misremembering, um, but 
like it doesn't strike me as something that would be in the game in this moment because you would have already done the fate route. There's no real reason to focus on Saber in that way. And it's something I think that's interesting is that because in the fate route in the game, Saber is very much paired in like paralleled with Shido, like like our Shido, the kid Shido, in that they both are people with these like very traumatic pasts and they're trying to sort of like deal with that. Saber's trying to deal with it by getting the Holy Grail and going back and undoing it. Shido is faced with like that option in, in the climax of the fate route and he turns it down. And it's like, and, and that is like the big moment where Saber fully realizes, you know, that the life she lived and where that has led her to was valuable and that the past isn't something she should try to like discard. Um, and so that's kind of the resolution in the game. Here, what I think is interesting is they kind of, it's similar, but they reframe it more as they parallel her with Archer um, and have her reflecting on her younger self, looking at herself at the moment she pulled the sword from the stone and chose to walk the path of a king. And that is like the moment, they frame it here as like, that's the moment she wants to undo specifically. Um, and that that is like equivalent to Archer trying to kill Shido. And so her seeing this, battle between Shido and his own future self is like she's kind of imagining that with her her own self and that's one of the things that allows her to come at this point of like acceptance at the end of the story specifically is that she has sort of learned by proxy for Shido and that like that element of it is still there in the game but they don't like zoom in on it in the way that they do here and I think some of those scenes are very smart it's one thing that like elevates Saber a little bit more in the mix of the story that is nice because you don't have the fate route in the anime version. Yeah, I love this whole scene. She says, what Archer is trying to kill is the self that gave rise to him to wipe out the mistakes he is doomed to repeat in the future. Once they had a dream, and then she's seeing herself in the field with Excalibur and the stone. She says, once they had a dream, both were right. Both of them were right. And now she's talking to herself. It's just that the outcome was not what they wished for, even if nothing but regrets remained. If they were able to achieve many of their ideals in the process, then kind of dot, 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 trailing off. But then that scene culminates in this amazing shot, one of my favorite shots in the series, that is a split, like, screen, um, but with kind of a fade in the middle where it's two versions of Saber facing each other. One, the maiden in the field in the dress, like, and it's all green pastures and blue sky, and one is the battlefield of her at the end of her entire path with all the swords in the ground. She's in her armor, bloodied, and the whole sky is gray, and there's no grass anymore. And it's made to look like it's effectively the same field, just mm -hmm. in two different play, you know, times. And then you have Saber back turned to us in the center, bisecting the frame. Be beautiful use of, like, the animated frame and image. Um, and just like, yeah, it, and it's so fluidly done of having her she is there in the scene she's watching it and just having this revelation in the moment of oh oh right and you also get a, a realization that saber is is probably more emotional mature <laughs> than the other characters yeah. on screen here because she's able to come to this conclusion with much less um angst um but it's a really it's a really beautiful scene yeah and it's just i i really love what they do with the adaptation to bring saber in and have her feel fully relevant in that scene and have her like story arc feel like it resolves very satisfactorily because like this is this is her moment of revelation as well as it is for Shiro. Yeah. So doubling back on a couple of things, I just want to talk about how 
batshit insane the first couple episodes of this season are. Uh-huh. Like, doubling back to, we ended, again, season one ends with um, this big twist where, you know, Caster we've already seen is kind of breaking the rules of the entire uh, Holy Grail War, right? Because she's got yeah. her own servants and all of that stuff. And so this is really crazy. What the hell is Caster up to? And then that season ends with, oh shit, Caster has stolen Saber. You know, Shiro is no longer a master, all of that stuff. So that already feels like a big enough twist. Like I think I intellectually thought at the end of that first season that that was going to be the primary driver of season two, was getting back Saber, defeating Caster, all of that kind of stuff. And instead... Season two picks up, and in the first episode, episode one of the second season, starts with them going, confronting Caster, getting completely fucked, and Archer betraying them and going over to Caster's side, and now neither of Reen or Shiro yeah. are masters. Then in the one after that, you have the decision, okay, we're gonna go, we're gonna go try to team up with Berserker and Ilya. That seems like maybe our, our best course of action, because we have to we have to get Caster, we have to get Saber back. All of that stuff. Well, then Ilya and Berserker get completely fucked by Gilgamesh, who has, unbeknownst to the rest of the characters, come in to the fray and started, you know, tearing shit up. So you have that. And then you do have them. They are able to kill Caster because it, it is revealed that Archer sort of did this as a pretense. This was part of a plan. He went over to Caster's side, but as a way of being able to defeat Caster. And he does effectively do that. And then at the end of the episode, he puts Rin in a cage of swords. She just He just throws down a bunch of swords around her. He's like, stay there, witch. And then he goes over. He's like, I'm going to kill this kid. I'm going to kill Shiro as a guardian. This is my role. Um, and that's the first five episodes. <laughs> That is an insane amount of plot that they move through in five episodes at the beginning of this season, completely upending, I think, what your expectations would have been coming out of that first batch of episodes. And if the show were any less good, if the storytelling were any less good, I think it might even feel a little bit whiplashy because um, they're not even done. In the second half, you have, you know, Lancer gets involved and you have Kotomine get killed very suddenly and all this stuff. It is a very twisty second season, you know, up to and including the whole Archer and Shiro are the same person thing. Yeah, it's really crazy. And there's a lot of really good stuff that's in that first five or six episodes because this is also where now you get to learn most of the identities of the various servants. So like, um, you know, you learn that Castor is Medea from like the Jason the Argonauts myth and then from the uh, Greek tragedy play um, that also expands on the Medea character. That's where a lot of like the her being a traitorous witch stuff comes from. Um, and I've always really loved this choice to use Medea, who's that just like right level of where she is a pretty prominent Greek mythological figure, but she's not like the first person that sticks out in your mind when you think about Greek mythology. It's like just enough of a deep cut that like you're likely to know basically about her, but probably you don't know like the whole thing. Um, and I think it's, I, I just love all their characterization of her. They go into more detail in some of her backstory here than they do in the game well the backstory of like her original master right before she killed him and got Kuzuki um and I love all that like that stuff is not from the game that's an original section made for the show and I oh, like really the, that's interesting because it's really yeah. good yeah like you you learn about it in this but it's just like sort of explained to you that oh she had a master and she betrayed that master and killed him and then blah 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 but they actually dramatize it here um, and I like Castor's characters so much. There's something about the notion of Medea who, you know, in the myth, the whole thing is that Jason, you know, has to go sail to uh, Colchis to get the Golden Fleece and bring it back so he can prove his birthright to be king of his homeland. 
Um, and when he is there in Colchis trying to get the Golden Fleece, the gods, I think it's Aphrodite, I want to say, like does some magic on Medea, who's the daughter of the king of Colchis, to make her fall in love with Jason. So she uses her magic that she knows to help Jason overcome various trials to be able to get the Golden Fleece, like fighting the, the dragon skeleton soldiers is probably like the most famous part there. But she ends up like killing her brother when she and Jason are trying to escape Colchis. Um, she ends up marrying Jason, but then later Jason like marries this younger woman who's a princess of another land. And so Medea um, murders her own children and sets that like lady to um, sort of seduce Jason on fire. Uh, and so that's kind of like the bulk of her myth. And she's usually depicted as this like, you know, the evil witch who's this like traitorous woman with, I think, like kind of forgetting the whole starting point is that she never did any of this of her own free will. She was a young girl who was taken from her homeland effectively against her will to weird for Jason. Um, and I like the way that fate sort of turns that story on its head a little bit by taking Medea's side. And there's a great moment in that scene with the, her original master where he goes to Kotamine at the church and like wants to have the pact undone or whatever. And he lays out like, yeah, she's this evil witch who burned her own children to death and all this stuff. And Kodomine Kide says like, oh, so that's how you interpreted her story where he's clearly like thought about like from her perspective, what would Medea understand about her own life? Um, that all she really wants to do is go back home. All she wants to do is be able to like live that life she originally wanted to have before the gods interfered and, and Jason showed up and all that shit happened. Um, and so I've, I've always really liked Castor's character. I think it's one of the cooler uses of mythology in, in fate. Yeah. It's a really, it's a striking character. We talked about the, the voice of the vocal performance last time. It's mm -hmm. fantastic and, and continues through these episodes. And I think her ending is very powerful. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then you get Kuzuki who also, um, you know, he's, uh, I've, I've always liked the scene where he, you know, Castor is dead. So the, the magic that enhances him is worn off or whatever. And he still goes to fight Archer and just gets completely fucking yes. murdered because it's like, yeah, you're like this. They don't get super into his backstory, but he's like a, a crazy, weird assassin man. Um, there, we might talk more about him on a different podcast. We will record from this series because he's relevant in something else in the Nasuverse in a way that I didn't realize, um, until relatively recently. But he's like a weird assassin man, and so he's very highly trained, but no normal human can stand up against a servant. And so um, when he goes against Archer, he's just is dispatched of very easily. Yeah. Uh, we also, through this entire stretch, get a lot of Lancer. And yes. who we had gotten a little bit of in the first season. He's in the first couple of episodes. He's involved in kind of our first little, you know, fights that we have in this series. Uh, I fucking love this version of Lancer. He is so cool. He's one of the coolest characters in this series. I love him to death. Voiced by Nobutoshi Kana, who I looked through his credits because I'm like, this is such a great vocal performance. It's like, it's a, it's a fairly, I feel like, almost unique take on the like kind of cool character archetype it's got a he's got a unique voice and i love it and i wasn't familiar with a lot of his work but i did learn he is the japanese voice of knuckles the echidna and now yes. i want to go watch all of japanese sonic stuff because that sounds like the most perfect voice of knuckles you could 
possibly have is Lancer from Unlimited Blade Works. Uh, God, I really like this character. And of course, he's involved in some amazing action. He has a great fight with Archer where he has his special spear, Guy Bolg, that he uses. Um, and then, of course, you have... Like Lancer in Fate Zero, he dies by being ordered to kill himself. It's an unfortunate quirk of the Lancer yeah. class as they have the worst deaths. But he takes Kodomine out with him because he is just the ultimate badass in this series. Uh, really steals the show for a couple episodes there. Yeah, no, Lancer is one of my favorites. Uh, it's fucking great. Yeah, I, I also had this revelation about the Knuckles thing a few months ago when <laughs> there was for Sonic Frontiers they made this like eight minute long little animation thing that's on YouTube. Um, that's like sets up how Knuckles gets involved in that game and how he ends up on that island. Uh, it's a, it's really good if people have not seen it. I highly recommend watching it. Then there is an English dub version, which I watched at first because because even though Sonic is technically a Japanese thing, English is really the language that it is made for because it's way more popular in America than it is in Japan. Um, but then I was like, oh, I should watch the Japanese version because I, I don't think I've ever heard Japanese Knuckles. I've heard like Japanese Sonic before and stuff. Um, and that's where I was like, wait, is that fucking Lancer? Oh my God, it's fucking Lancer. And it was like, my, I felt like my brain exploded because yeah, I feel like Nobutoshi Kanda is like a great voice actor who's not like, he hasn't been in a lot of stuff recently. Um, he has some like good older roles and stuff that he, uh, is more known for. Like, um, uh, he's a guy in Saint Seiya, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Nobutoshi Kanda, Lancer or Cuckoo Lane, they don't really go into any of his like mythological stuff, but he's like, if there is one Irish mythological hero, it is fucking Cuckoo Lane or the Hound of Cuckoo Lane. Um, and it's just, you know, Cuckoo Lane is an awesome mythological character. Um, you know, it's, it's, they, I like that in Fate Zero, in Fate Zero, they kind of, when they made Fate Zero, they kind of made Dearmood as this sort of parallel so that we have our two Lancers are both from Irish mythology, which is cool, though they're from different eras of Irish mythology. Um, but yeah, with Lancer, he has, what might be my favorite scene of the show, certainly like in terms of a non-dramatic scene, which is when he decides to team up with Shiro and Neen and they like start making that deal. And then Shiro says like, okay, if we're going to do this, I have one condition. Just because you're like teaming up with us doesn't mean you can get so chummy with Tosaka. Um, it sounds such a good scene. <laughs> where he's like, what the fuck is this kid talking about? And then he puts like <laughs> it together and then just starts losing his shit. And then that's where the moment where you feel like, oh, he's actually committed to really help these kids. And that's like, you know, how he is for the rest of the show is that like he wants to be a hero. He doesn't want to do any of this like sneaking around, stabbing kids in the heart shit that he's doing in the first couple of episodes, um, which he has some lines there to that effect. You just don't know enough about the character to know like what his whole deal is. But that's where he's, he actually gets some respect for Shido and Bean and realizes that, like, they're good people at heart, right? They're, they have this kind of slightly, you know, Shido has this kind of old-fashioned mindset um, that is, I think very much speaks to Lancer. Um, and that just whole conversation that they have where they're both talking about being right in front of her. Um, and it's just like, oh, you're in for a whole lot, kid. And he's like, yeah, no, I've known for a while that Tosak is a handful and she just loses her shit. I fucking adore that scene. It's so funny. Yes, it's it's so it's so good. And and as you were saying with Knuckles, like now I uh, I know Discotech is preparing to release Sonic X in the US in Japanese for the first time. That's a show that's been really hard to find in its original language. I might have to check that out now just because I know what Knuckles sounds like. And mm -hmm. uh, that excites me. And I just don't have a lot of uh, exposure to the Japanese Sonic cast, which is a really good cast. It just doesn't get a lot yes. of attention. Because as you say, Sonic is kind of an English first franchise, even though it's got 
it's got an A-list cast in Japan, so absolutely. But anyway, uh, Lancer, Lancer rocks. I'm sorry he had to die by stabbing himself, but at least this Lancer does get to take Kotomine out with him. And uh, I do, even though Kotomine not in this series a ton, it is extraordinarily satisfying to see him effectively hoisted on his own petard here and die uh, a horrible death. It's great. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things with all of Kotomine's stuff here is you also have to understand that, like, if you were playing the game, you would already know that he was Lancer's master by this point. Like, I think that's okay. one of the reasons why that reveal goes by like super fast um, is because you would have known that that's all comes up in the first route and stuff. It was a true um, surprise for me. I was like gaming it out. I was trying to, to guess around it. I had a whole theory that it was Sakura because we were going to learn something because I know she's the main character of the third route. But no, it was Kotomine. Yeah, there it was, was Kotomine. He's, you know, he's once a cheating bastard, always a cheating <laughs> bastard, you know. <laughs> Um, yes. but yes, yeah, it, so if, if it existed, if this was like the only animated thing for Fate Stay Night and Kodomi Nikide, it would be unsatisfying. He gets a lot more stuff. So like, I think you could just enjoy his stuff here for what it is, which he does just get a very satisfying death where, you know, he yes. thinks he's so cocksure about it. Um, and then Lancer just gets up and fucking just stabs him straight through the heart, which is kind of Lancer's whole deal. Um, and he just gets this bad off, badass line. It's like, come on, you idiot. Like, if something like that were just enough to kill me, I would have no busy uh, business being a heroic spirit. Yes. Uh, and, and with all of that bloodshed done, we then have our true antagonist of the end of Unlimited Blade Works, which is Gilgamesh, taken center stage. I, I enjoyed Gilgamesh quite a bit in Fate Zero, as y'all know. But in Unlimited Blade Works, good God, he is... He is the biggest fucking prick. He is the most evil piece of shit villain who just like, I don't even know if you can describe him quite as evil because he has no concept of morality. They they so push the idea of he just sees the world as his. He sees everyone as lesser. Uh, and then he gets the ultimate fucking comeuppance in that he is not just beaten by Shiro, but he gets his goddamn arm cut off while he is preparing to use Aya. Um, the animation on his face in those final couple episodes as he is humiliated, the just Tomokazu Seki losing his shit in these episodes is up there for me with Mamoru Miyano in the final episodes of Death Note as Light losing his, just like a, of the ultimate like egotistical maniac villain character losing their shit as they are humbled. It is the most satisfying Confront series of confrontations. I one of the great villains in the history of anime. Oh my god! Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. Um, you know, I love you know that they have here. It is him. Uh, he never in this version ever gets into the gold armor, which I love. Um, so he is just always in his sort of modern day outfit with his hair <laughs> yes. down and the the black jacket and stuff, which that is from the game. To be clear, so that's that's like very much the game does that. There in some of the other routes, he you see him in the gold armor get up. Um, but here he's just fucking chilling, you know, uh, because this is the route where he's basically on his own, you know, for the whole most of the second half, like Kodamine is dead. It's just Gilgamesh doing his shit. Um, you learn that his whole thing is he just looks out at all these like mongrels that have spread across the earth. And, you know, he has this whole explanation he gives to um, Shinji, who's also a real piece of shit. The fucking second half of this show. Yes. Um, it's, it's the only regret I have for the way Unlimited Blade works ends is that Shinji survives. It's like, uh, you know, you can throw <laughs> him back into the muck, please. It's like, get rid of him. Um, but Gilgamesh has that speech where he says, you know, when he was 
king. And I don't know if this is based on an actual myth from Gilgamesh or not. I don't remember. Um, but he has this thing of, you know, he had eight servants brought to him or whatever, and he would kill any of them that um, were like unnecessary, that nobody would miss them if they were gone. And he found that he couldn't kill a single one. And then he looks out at like the world today and he's like, how many people could I kill? And with those same conditions, one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, who knows how many. Um, and there's something about that just sense of him sort of this this king who has come back to his lawn and has found a bunch of weeds growing there is like just how he views all of humanity. And there's yes. just such a like natural it's such a natural part of how he views the world that yeah it's like there are lots of other villains that on the face of it are similar to Gilgamesh but nobody has the fucking swagger that dude has like Gilgamesh just has such a purely realized arrogance to him that you're that you fully believe it you just fully believe yeah this is just how he sees the world and there's nothing else to it there's nothing like deeper really going on there <laughs> He is just like the king of heroes and he views the world and everything in it as his own. Yeah, it's, you know, I was having a Twitter conversation with one of our listeners the other day where he saw that I, I made one tweet about Unlimited. I made my joke about the theme songs being too good. And uh, he asked me, oh, hey, now you're in deep enough. Who's your favorite servant? Uh, and I think the answer I gave was Ryder from Fate Zero because, you know, he's my boy. Uh, mm. And he said, yeah, my favorite is Gilgamesh. That dude is such a cocksucker. And I'm like, that word, I know, I know that word has like problematic like tones now, but it's the best word for him. I'm sorry. Yeah. If you are like our age, I just again the 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 word not being that word not more used in the Deadwood sense of the word, yeah. right? Not mm. as like a slur, but just as a like, God, that dude is a fucking cocksucker. He's so shitty. I can imagine fucking Ian McShane from Deadwood looking at this yes. guy and calling him a cocksucker because he is such a piece of shit. But he is also like so righteous in his piece of shittery. Um, what a what an amazing villain. And again, if you are an anime viewer, you're not coming from the visual novel. You're just watching this in the UFO table order like I am. This is so effective as a sequel to Fate Zero because Gilgamesh... This is a his whole motivation here is a direct follow-up on one of the central thematic dialogues of Fate Zero, which is what is the role of a king, right? Mm -hmm. And like his whole thing here comes out of that big Grail discussion episode where they have the big meeting of kings. And then you have his whole goal is to make the end of Fate Zero happen on a global scale instead of just the city. So it's like, okay, we're we're one upping from the end of the first series now here, and we have the survivor from that, Shinji, or not Shinji, Shiro, having to confront that and stop it it just again works so seamlessly as if you are coming from fate zero this just works beautifully as a sequel and part of that is the role gilgamesh plays here uh and yeah and then the penultimate episode i there's a couple of sequences i would put up here with this also ones from ufo table like you know um tanjiro going toe-to-toe -to -toe with um uh, Rui in the forest in episode 19 of Kimetsu no Yaiba mm -hmm. but like this is one of the most fucking satisfying fight scenes I have ever seen of of Shiro who has gotten the crest from um, Tosaka and so now he can use all this mana creating the unlimited blade works creating the reality marble bringing uh, him in here and then explaining like you are the one master or servant I could beat because you never mastered one noble phantasm. You have a thousand and I can just copy them all, motherfucker. And that whole idea, the way Shiro takes him to task, the animation, there are just some 
god-tier pieces of animation of Shiro running around, batting off all of the swords, jumping through the air. Just you can tell, like, it's like there's no in-between frames. It's just every frame mm-hmm. is a keyframe. And then the big final blow of jumping in and cutting off Gilgamesh's arm and the look on his face, just a perfect piece of animation. I, I, I Again, just stand up and cheer. It's so good. Yeah, and it's all just so well set up as a fight, right? Because they've been yeah. sort of seeding this idea since Archer was seemingly killed. You know, he actually escaped um, and gets like, you know, actually, as Shido complains about at the end of that episode, he gets to steal the whole fucking show because Archer likes to show the fuck off. Um, but ever since this Archer's supposed demise where he pushes Shido out of the way, doing a very Emiya Shido-esque thing, you know, where it's like he sacrifices himself to save somebody else and tells him like, you defeat him. Um, and then Shido's, you know, he's the only person who can beat Gilgamesh. And I think the reasoning of it stands so well. Like, I think it's like, you know, you especially if you're just watching the anime stuff and you're coming from Fate Zero, I think the question of like, how does anyone beat Gilgamesh is such a big one, you know? Um, and, and in this, you've seen him like just wipe the floor with Berserker. It's like, how could anybody possibly beat this guy? And I think the answer of, well, the only one can beat him is like the faker, right? It's the person who can, who has nothing of their own, but can copy whatever anybody else has, um, as long as it's just the weapon, right? Shido can't copy the abilities of any other servant, but as long as uh, Yogamesh is in Unlimited Blade Works, Shido can copy his fucking noble phantasms faster than Gilgamesh can like launch them out of the gates of Babylon. Because as soon as they exist in Unlimited Blade Works, like the copy exists in Unlimited Blade Works, right? Like as like a matter of fact, if Shido sees it, it must exist within Unlimited Blade Works. That's how like that reality marble functions. And so I think that reasoning that Shido gives of like y- anybody else. I would not stand a chance. If it was Saber here or Archer or Lancer or Caster or Heracles or whoever, they would be Shido would be dead within fucking half of a second. And similarly, were any other hero standing up against Gilgamesh, they also would be dead. Because also Shido would stand no chance against Saber, because if he fucking he can't he can't make all the weapons that Gilgamesh has unless he's fighting against Gilgamesh and he's able to see them, right? So it's like he can't bring out this arsenal against anyone other than Gilgamesh because he just copies Gilgamesh's arsenal. So it's like the one pairing that can bring Gilgamesh down. But then, of course, it has that logical element and it also has the thematic element of it has to be a lowly human, right? It also has to be someone that Gilgamesh underestimates because if he had ever at one point in the fight before the very end taken Shido seriously, he could have beaten him, right? Like if Shido, if, if Gilgamesh had used Aya, Shido can't copy Aya. Like Aya is like a primordial fucking god sword from behind. Before the world existed or some crazy bullshit like that's on i don't even know if it's technically a sword or whatever kind of level of it's a concept <laughs> that he that gilgamesh is using you know it's a crazy anime nonsense and they add in for unlimited blade works this scene doesn't exist in the game they add in that little moment where the grail tries to go grab gilgamesh and he brings Aya out to blow up the arm they so that they can set up within the scope of this fight that specific thing of Gilgamesh has a fucking get out of jail free card in his back pocket throughout the entire fight. But he has this line where he says, Shido, um, like, you know, being a king is a real pain in the ass. Because if I can't, because if the moment I take a fight with someone like you seriously is the moment that I lose, right? He can't be a king and also fight like a mongrel um, seriously because it just sort of knocks him from his pedestal. And so that moment where Shido 
you know, blocks a bunch of um, Gilgamesh's attacks, goes launching up into the air, uses Ro'ayas, the shield of, of Ajax from the Iliad, um, which we've seen Archer use before in the fight with Lancer to block a bunch of other attacks, summons one of Archer's short swords, and then comes down. And as he's coming down, I love the detail that Gilgamesh reaches for Ea, like it comes out of the gates of Babylon, he reaches for it, he hesitates for a second, then he grabs it, and right as he grabs it is when Shiro comes down and cuts his arm off. So it's like, if Gilgamesh had decided one second earlier to actually take Shiro seriously, the fight would have been over. So it's like the only reason that Gilgamesh lost was purely through his own arrogance, Um, and it's the way that's all told visually through the fight is fucking phenomenal. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you're so right because it's like again, it's this this show is very good at like literalizing ideas through the visuals of the sword comes down and he loses his arm the moment he goes and hesitates for Aya, right? It is his own arrogance that kills him. But again, uh just the the sheer rage he gets into in the second half of this fight, the uh performance by Tomokazu Seki there's this one line that I love. I think it's after he first, like, loses in an exchange with Shiro and, like, he's one of his swords destroyed. Um, and Shiro gives the whole explanation where he says, you know, you're like me, jack of all trades, master of one. He's rejoined her to that. And this is such a good translation because I can imagine, like, a Saturday morning cartoon villain saying it. When I'm done with you, there won't be a single bone shard left of your counterfeiting cranium. I love it. I love that because it so fits in Gilgamesh's mouth, but I can also imagine Skeletor saying it to He-Man. When I'm done with you, there won't be a single bone shard left of your counterfeiting cranium. Yes, no, it's, it's, yeah, Gilgamesh starts to lose his composure and he's basically, you know, that would be a moment where in the fan subs you could pretty much justify throwing some F-bombs or something in there if you wanted. Um, (laughs) Because, yes, yeah, uh, Gilgamesh starts to lose his shit. Um, and they set it up well also of like he has a real animosity towards Archer in the couple of other scenes they're in together where he calls him faker and stuff like that. You know, so they've seeded the idea that Gilgamesh clearly is aware that like this is the only thing that could possibly hurt him or like beat his ability. But also his arrogance is such that he can't fathom the idea that somebody copying the original that that could be good enough, you know? That's like, because yes. his whole thing is that he is the original hero. He's from the beginning of time. He has all the original noble phantasms, the things that all the later noble phantasms are based on, um, and that none of that shit, none of these mongrels, you know, which is that word mongrel he uses is a very literal translation of what he says in Japanese, zashu, like that, it's like, you know, mixed blood, you know, it's someone who's like diluted, you know, it's like you're you're not pure, um, uh, and so there's nothing, he can't imagine something like that being able to stand up against the original, but that's whole Shido's whole fucking deal is that nothing about him is original. Everything he is, is borrowed from Kiritsugu and stuff like that. Um, but you know, it doesn't matter if it's borrowed or not, like it's still, it's still his. Um, and, and that's part of what just makes it a perfect fight. Um, conceptually a perfect fight in terms of execution. It is definitely, one of the all-time great anime fights ever is Shido fighting Gilgamesh. Yes, because again, at the beginning, if you're coming out of Fate Zero or or however you've been introduced to Gilgamesh, your initial expectation would not be that Shiro is the one who's going to take him down, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, early on, I'm like, okay, we're going to finally get the Saber on Gilgamesh rematch. And the show very clearly, like, Saber keeps coming in like, time for the rematch! And Shiro's like, 
no, I got this. You go, you go do the other thing. You've got something else to do. And I love it because Saber is raring for a fight with this fucking cocksucker. Um, yeah, I love it. They have that dinner table scene. Like that's like kind of like quiet before the storm uh, episode where Saber is like, as you say, like kind of raring. He's like, I'll go take out Gilgamesh. And then she just sort of casually says, it's like, no, Saber, you wouldn't even stand a chance against him. And Saber's like so offended at it. She realizes like, probably should have said that a little softer. Um, yes. It's like, but he's, it's true, you know? Um, it's, it's a, she's poorly matched against Gilgamesh, although, but she does get to have a really sick fucking fight with Assassin though. That is absolutely, oh, that's a good fight. I almost forgot about that. But yeah, that works. That's a great scene. Yeah. Poor, yeah. poor old Sasaki Kojido. You know, all he got to do was hang out on some stairs and get his, like, rib cage ripped out shit. All he wanted to do was fight the pretty girl, you know? But he got it. She, you know, yep. Saber gave him a good fight in the end. I like that moment when Saber realizes he's disappearing, goes, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, dude. I have, I've been pulling my punches. Let's do this for real. You know, Saber's very noble. It's, it's very good. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and I love Assassin's last line where he says, you know, something like, I took her for being like a pretty little bird, but it turns out that she must be some kind of lion. Um, I never really did have luck with women. And then he disappears. It's a great, great parting great line. Scene. Oh, it's so good. And of course, we have Archer's role in this episode, which is to come in at the last moment as Gilgamesh is trying to pull Shiro into the grail with him. No, and no. That's not what he's doing. He says very specifically, I love this moment where Shiro says, are no, you no, trying to right, pull me right. in? And Gilgamesh says, no, fuck you. Like, you stay right there and I'm going to pull myself out. And it's yes. such a fucking great <laughs> moment where he's like, no, you stay there, mongrel. I'm pulling myself out of here. You're so right, because that's what that's what fucking makes it. It's because Gilgamesh is still arrogant enough to think that after all of this, he can order Shiro around yes. and be like, stay there, plant your feet. I'm coming out. <laughs> Yes, and so you have Shiro saying, I will lose my arm if I have to to pull you in there. And then it's Archer's like, well, do it if you must, but first, can you step to the left a little? And I'm like, oh. And then he just gets a knife to the forehead and dies. Stand up, cheer. Oh, my God. Perfect, perfect ending. Yeah, it's such a fucking incredible ending. Like, the moment where Gilgamesh says, like, no, you stay there and I'm gonna, I'm pulling myself out. I just... You know, it's so good because Gilgamesh is like part of his arrogance is also like he doesn't really give a shit if Inuyashito lives or dies. Like even with his right. arm cut off, like he's going to kill Inuyashito, but like he's not petty in the way that I'm going to take you with me if I have to. So it's like, no, like I don't think that thought even probably crossed. No, Gilgamesh's you're right. Until she just said, yes. he's like, no, I'm just trying to get out. You stupid mongrel. He's the ultimate narcissist. Shiro yes. doesn't exist like at a certain point. Right. Yeah. Speaking of which, before we actually talk about the final Archer scene, um, is this the route where Gilgamesh is most prominent in Fate Stay Night? I'm curious. Um, yeah, probably. Um, okay. I would say so. He's, he's um, like, I won't comment on Heaven's Field because we'll see those movies, but he and Kodamine are like about equally prominent in the Fate route. Um, it kind of, the Fate route boils down more or less to like, Shido gets paired off with fighting Kodamine at the end. Saber gets paired off with fighting Gilgamesh at the end. Okay. I mean, it's kind of like a four-way fight, but that's kind of how it splits out. So they're more or less given equal weighting, um, and that's kind of how the fate route goes. Okay, so we do get a Saber-Gilgamesh rematch, just not in this yes. one. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad that exists somewhere, and maybe one day Ufo Table can animate it for us, <laughs> because yeah, I would I, like I to would, see that. I would appreciate it. I would very really love if they made a fate. Like, it could be a couple of movies. You know, I think you'd probably do it in, honestly, two movies, because... You know, you don't need to do all the backstory stuff, so. Yeah. 
Please. All right. Um, Archer's final scene. He is up on the hill. One of the most beautiful UFO table backdrops I have ever seen, which is saying something. I've already made it a wallpaper on my computer um, and has his final scene as he's disappearing with uh, Tosaka. And I love this scene. I love how they we see him from the back for a while. And then when he turns around, we only see him from like the mouth down. And then finally, when we get the full reveal, we see how much he looks like Shiro. Like for the yes. first time. They, yeah, his hair redesigned. is down. And so yeah. with his hair comes down, it's got the same kind of shaggy look that Shido's has. And it's also just like very good character animation where just the way mm-hmm. he holds himself and everything, he's not putting on a pretense. He's a, he's letting Tosaka see that he is Emiya, right? Yes. Um, you are, I am the person you knew. And he has these lines, look after me. I, as you know, I'm a bit hopeless. Give me a shoulder to lean on. Um, and my other favorite Kanaueda moment in the series is her coming back and saying, I know, I'll do my best. I'll try my hardest to make sure he doesn't end up a twisted jerk like you. I'll make sure he learns to love himself. So you hang in there too. And again, this is this might actually be my favorite single moment of character animation in the entire series. Is just Tosaka coming back and saying, I want to make sure you know he, he learns to love himself. And just the the smile on her face as she pushes through the tears to like, give Archer this happy final moment. Um, it's incredible. It's a it's a stunning piece of, of character animation. Yeah, and then the, the last line of the exchange is the one that really gets me, because this is when uh, Archer looks at her and he says, Or, don't worry, Tosaka, I'll try my hardest from now on too. But there's like, this is one of those where if you know enough about Japanese to catch some of like the name stuff, Right. For the whole show, Archer calls her Dean. That's actually something they specifically established in the prologue where they have a conversation about how he should address her. Uh, Shido always calls her Tosaka. Um, and so in that moment, that's the moment where he fully reverts to being Shido is him saying, don't worry, Tosaka, I'll try my hardest from now on to you. And he smiles. And that's also where Junichi Suabe is clearly like really trying to emulate some of the like um, kind of ticks or whatever of the, the voice that Sugiyama does for Shido. Um, and that's like the time you most get to see it, and then he fades away. It always, it always really gets me that moment. It's beautiful. And then the final moment of the episode is her turning around and seeing Shiro, who is standing there in clothes and tatters, covered in blood, and he just is this goofy little. He raises his arm like hi, and has this dumb little smile. It's hilarious. And then she turns around and is is teary eyed, but then she forces herself to kind of smile and does this thumbs up. Another one of my favorite images in the series, and they go home together. Um, and it's a, we've still got the epilogue, epilogue, but just that alone is a perfect little ending. Yeah. And also, you know, for Shido, like, Saber's gone now, so it's like all that magic healing shit. It's like, he's gonna have to fucking work on that on his own. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. Shiro's like, okay, let's go home, but first, the hospital. I need some stitches. Yeah, like, yes. if, if the epilogue was more realistic when they show the section that happens one month after uh, the ending, he should have just been, like, in the hospital with, like, a full body cast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. Yes. Um, question, by the way, here. So, the way he's able to do all the unlimited blade work stuff in this episode is yes. that he gets part of Tosaka's magic crest and is able to borrow her mana. Is that the sex scene in the visual novel yes. when they exchange? Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. They, so, they, yeah, in the TV version, and I assume the PS2 all ages version, mm-hmm. they have to get undressed to a certain extent for it, but it is not a sex scene. Uh, I, but I can see how it could become a sex scene. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the whole idea is that they have to be, 
like they have to share like an intimate connection in order to like pass mana between them um and like one of the easiest ways to do that is to have sex and so that's like and then also obviously they're like in a relationship at this point very clearly um and that's like the the sex scene in unlimited blade works is one of the ones that i think actually honestly works pretty well in the original game because it's it's not particularly erotic in any way because it's two teenagers having sex for the first time. So it's like very, they're like both very awkward about it. It's like, it's honestly like quite endearing. Um, but yes, that, that is the scene. Um, and because then, okay. and then after that is when like in the game, um, Shido has this vision of where he sees some of Tosaka's memories. And that's where he has the vision of her watching him. Although he doesn't fully understand what's going on when they're both in middle school on that like evening when the sun's coming down and she's watching him do these high jumps um outside over and over again like all that stuff's also from the game yeah i understand obviously this is a tv show why they couldn't do the sex scene i do kind of think it's a little weird how chaste they are in the final episodes it's not fully explicit even in the epilogue that they're in like a romantic relationship there's no kiss mm -hmm. or hand holding or anything and i felt like that was because like in the series lore they are right like they're yes. in a relationship it just doesn't i don't know i feel like it could have been made when i say more explicit i don't mean they get naked and fuck but it could have been more explicit a little bit i felt like yeah i think it, you know it, it's uh, like i definitely like redid the epilogue that they definitely i mean they're fucking living together you know right um, yes but yes you know it's it's fine it's just something i noticed but let's talk about that epilogue so the epilogue is sort of split in half where we start in the clock tower a couple of years later and they're both learning magic. Um, and then we flash back to a month after the conflict and kind of get some resolution on that. Uh, and then we kind of have this final interrogation of Shiro's ideals. And like I said, the ending, I think, leaves you unsettled in very specific and interesting ways. Yeah. So just for some context for like how this is adapting the game. The section that's like the one month later, um, all of that, and it's longer in the game, but that is the stuff that is from the game. The game doesn't have any of the two years later in Clock Tower. That whole area is totally original for the anime. Now, again, some of the like ideas that are expressed there are like similar to other scenes that were in the epilogue from the game that just take place the one month later. Um, but this is one of my favorite things as a fan of the game is this epilogue and that two years later section because it's... Stuff that, like, they're pulling from some things from, like, the kind of pseudo-sequel game Fate Hollow Atraxia with some of the characters like Luvia. Obviously, you've got um, Lord Elmelo II slash Waver here. Um, so it's, like, some of the bits and bobs that they pull, or in, like, the notion of Tosaka going to the clock towers from some other stuff, are from some of, like, the ephemera around the Fate series. But we've never actually seen, like, two years after Fate Stay Night a continuation of this ending and it's very satisfying from that point of spec uh that point of view as a fan of the game um just to see like a slightly more grown-up version of these characters still struggling with the very like unsettled nature of shido's life from the end of unlimited blade works that's really interesting i would have assumed the lord el meloy scene is original to the anime because waver velvet is not in the visual novel right no he's no. Right. He, he had not been conceived of by the time the visual yes. novel came out 
So I was pretty sure that was new, but I would not have, I would have guessed that, I mean, it's, it feels very seamless. It feels mm-hmm. like the natural end to this story to jump ahead. I think the character redesigns are really, really good, especially on Tosaka. Shiro is always kind of boyish, um, although he's, you know, obviously uh, older in this scene, but I think the way Reen has like let her hair long and all of that, well, witches have to let their hair, I learned this yes. from Witch on the Holy Night, the visual novel, hair has powers. Uh, <laughs> we can talk about, we'll do that in our hair episode on the Kinako Nasu verse next week. <laughs> no, um, but anyway, so you have all of that um but yeah overall i think it's a really interesting scene because it is you know the thing that is offered to shiro at the clock tower is he is offered admission into the mage association and he could become an official part of this but of course he rejects it as of course shiro would reject that yes. like that's not you know and i really like the lord el Meloy, you know waiver velvet scene where waiver's like yeah that is a stupid fucking wish kid but if you have that wish, you probably shouldn't be a mage. I really yeah. like his like reasoning there. It's really funny. It's not as vulgar as I said, but you have that. And then you have this, this final conversation with them. Um, and you have, after the credits, you have uh, Junichi Suabe come back for a final monologue as Archer, where he says, A boy once said, I don't want to watch people die. Shouldn't it be possible to save all who suffer? What the boy was trying to cut down was himself. He wielded his sword for what he came to believe in. There is no longer a path where his battle ends and he turns back. However, he did get his answer. He has regrets, and he doesn't know how many times he has wished to do it all over. This fate is set in stone, and Emiya will probably go on cursing it. But even still, I was not wrong. And we have Archer in the Unlimited Blade Works here. We have him disappear, and then we have a cut to Emiya in the, in the desert on a journey like we saw Archer in, in one of Archer's flashbacks, mm-hmm. and he smiles and the series ends. But yeah, I'm still not sure what I'm supposed to take away from that, other than that that, it kind of feels like, and I'm, I'm curious, is, is that monologue from the game? Is that from the visual novel? I think so. I don't remember specifically. Um, it it almost sure feels it like the end of a route kind of like suggesting that there is another path because he's literally mm-hmm. saying like this path is set in stone this is what is going on but kind of making you think about alternatives i don't know is that does that reading make sense yes um because i think it's an open question at the end of the unlimited blade works route um like what which which shiro becomes archer right is like is is a question like is is it maybe the fate route Shiro becomes Archer because he never confronted any of this. Like, did Archer have these experiences in his living life? Like, did he yeah. encounter his own future self as well? Like, that's like an open question because it's never it's never been like specifically clarified as far as my knowledge. Like, if there is one of the Shiro's that specifically is meant to be the one that becomes Archer. Um, in my head, I've always seen it as the fate route. Shiro is the one who becomes eventually Archer. This one, maybe he does. And then we'll see with Heaven's Feel, like, where that story goes. But for this one, it feels like... It, it feels like he probably does, but there's a chance, right? It's like right. it's kind of like the thing that, that Dean says in her not monologue to Shido in this. Where it's like, you are definitely walking the same path, but maybe you can get further. Right. Like maybe, you know, he doesn't end up being betrayed and like has that specific like death. Maybe there is like a way he can work past that point if Tosaka is able to get him to care more about himself and stuff. So there's like, I think, a glimmer of hope, but it still feels like it's 
he will almost certainly still end up as Archer in some form, but maybe a happier, better version of Archer um, is, I think, kind of like the implication to me yeah. at the end. And I guess this is where I just like to clarify, Fate Stay Night, so the visual novel, these are three separate stories. There are three separate continuities, yeah. effectively, right? Yes. But they are meant to be read in a certain order. So there is mm-hmm. clearly some kind of like evolution you come to understand of possibilities for this character, Shiro yes. Emiya. Okay. Yes, I think it will be very clear when you watch Heaven's Feel, it is a sequel to this story, even if it is technically yeah. taking place. You know, it's not a sequel in a chronological sense, but in a thematic sense, it is building on all of these ideas. Absolutely. Right. I, this is an interesting question. How does the larger, like, Fate universe, like Fate Grand Order and stuff, deal with that Fate Stay Night has no one single ending? Uh, it's all set in, like, the maybe multiverse. It's the same universe, maybe it's not. I mean, none of these characters... Okay, this is... None of these characters really show up in Fate Grand Order in the sense that, like, heroic spirits, when they are summoned, are never the same heroic spirit, right? So it's like Saber, other than Saber, who we already went her whole thing in the last episode where she's not a normal heroic spirit. But, like, let's say Lancer, right? Cuckoo Lane Lancer is not going to remember any of this shit, but he's summoned from the Throne of Heroes again because time has no meaning for a heroic spirit. Um, Like, I don't even know... Technically, if Archer, I guess I don't know how Counter Guardians work in that way. I don't know if Archer technically is really going to retain all of his memories of this stuff, or maybe if there's just like a glimmer of something that is retained when he goes back to the Throne of Heroes or something. Um, but yeah, so in Fate Grand Order, none of that is like really addressed. Fate Hall Atraxia is a whole weird conversation about what that game's story is as a sort of sequel to Fate Stay Night that tries to account to some extent with. Because because Fate Hall Atraxia does not take place really after any of the endings for Fate Stay Night because all the characters are still alive in that game, um, and so it's it's complicated. So it's like it, to put it more simply, there has never been an actual sequel to Fate Stay Night because there has right. never been a story that is really set after any of the roots from this game. Everything is like vaguely might be set into the same world or it might be a parallel universe kind of thing. Okay. I was just curious, and maybe some of our listeners were too, if they have not read the visual novel. So I thought I might as well ask. Um, What else to say about Unlimited Blade Works? Is there anything else you want to talk about with this epilogue specifically? Um, Just that I I fucking, as a fan, I adore it. Um, So some of the stuff like Luvia, uh, or Luvia Jolita, Edelfelt, um, who is the (laughs) blonde-haired woman who has a crush on Shero, as she calls him, and has a fight with Tosaka. That is a character that's from Fate Holotraxia the kind of sequel to Fate Stay Night. And I've always loved that character. And she's in some of the other spinoffs as well. So it was fun to see, have her here, you know, Waver getting to have a cameo. I love the idea of Shido and Tosaka going to Glastonbury, which is where the like supposed grave of King Arthur is. Like that's a real place. Um, Like I understand, like they've actually visited there to do the backgrounds and stuff and, and model it after the real place. Um, That's a beautiful scene. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like all that stuff is like if you, you know, if you had played the game and this was like you coming back to the story to animated form, the epilogue is just like a real treat. And I think it was a smart idea to give a full epilogue episode rather than trying to sort of like pace the episodes out so that all that one month later stuff happened in like the second half of the final episode or something, which is how most anime would do this. Like the story is big enough. I think it like warrants having a full epilogue episode. Um, And so all those like little additions they do, I think are really, really smart. Uh, It's just one of my favorite episodes of this show. Yeah, no, I'm very glad it exists. And again, in, in 
kind of the same way as the epilogue for uh, Kara no Kyokai. I like that it pushes you a little bit. I like that it complicates mm-hmm. it. It's it's not a easy. He will become Archer. He won't become Archer. It's and and which one of those is good? Which one of those is bad? It really is like, well, this is a person still in development, and he's in a specific place. But this is the path he's sort of chosen to walk, albeit with he and Rin are are very clearly committed to each other, right? Yes. Um, and so I, you know, and I think that final scene, Junichi Suabe's final narration, I think I love that he gets the final lines because mm-hmm. it's just to me kind of the defining performance of of this anime in particular is is him to me, um, and it's just it's a very powerful closing. Absolutely, yeah, it's yeah, great. It's great. One thing we haven't talked uh, much about in in this episode, Sean, we talked about it last time. It's just the musical score for this show yeah. is so ludicrously good. Uh, we are being spoiled this season on Japanimation Station between Yuki Kajiura's stuff and then everything here. Um, you know, the music, I think, is very good in the first half. And we talked about, like, Archer's theme is so cool and stuff like yes. that. But I think it really takes off in the second half here. There is so There are so many beautiful pieces in this half of the show. So many good action pieces. Um, the show, the final end credits run under a piece of score, not under, like, a, a song mm-hmm. or something. And I think that's, like, really haunting. It's, it's You kind of pull out from Reen and Shiro in their house together in England. And then you pull out and you get this, like run through the unlimited blade works like you know space with the credits rolling and this like really intense piece of music um it's really striking from start to finish yeah and one thing that the second season does is it starts building in themes from the game that are then the redone versions are by the people who compose those themes for the game so there's a few of like Obviously, they play the the Sword of Promise Victory song when uh, Saber uses Excalibur to blow up the Grail, which is fucking sick and like an incredible fucking <laughs> sequence of animation. Yeah. Um, and a good version of that song. Um, you get. I think this plays over Archer's thing at the end, or it might be an earlier scene of the epilogue. There's a scene in the epilogue, um, where they play an instrumental version of this illusion. That the the Lisa song from the end of season one, that is also the opening theme for the original game, that is the one that most jumps out at me is like, oh my god, this is this is the game song. Because it just like as with lots of visual novels, they really like using if they have a nice uh lyrical theme they got put together for the opening video, they like to do like six different instrumental versions of that song. Um then so that uh, is really good. But for me, the big one. And I don't know if you hadn't played the game, I don't know if this song will have stood out or not. Um, but for me, as somebody coming from the game, one of the most well-known songs from the game is the Imia theme that plays whenever they use the Unlimited Blade Works, um, which is a theme that, like, it, it starts with this very ominous, like, kind of, like, chanting, and then you get this almost, like, alarm sound that comes up, this, like, and then eventually after that plays for a while, you get this nice piano theme that's like, ba-da-da-dum. Bum, 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 and so on and so forth. Like, that's it's a very iconic, memorable piece of music from the game. Um, and one of, the things I, one of the things I love is that that Archer theme that you heard a lot in the first half of the show is the Emia theme. It just, it's the same chord progression, and they arpeggiate the chords on electric guitar. Um, and then you get that counter melody is kind of like um, hints at the main melody from the Emia theme. So you get this kind of like dark rock version of that Unlimited Blade Works song 
um, that never really fully culminates into that big sweeping piano melody that the main song does. And it's, it's one of the reasons why that's one of my favorite pieces of music is that I think it subtly is like setting up the idea of Archer and Imia, um, because that if again if you know the song and the music from the game like i think that will like start to stand out to you after you've heard that theme a few times um and it's like just a really great piece of music writing it's a it's one of my favorite pieces in the show i didn't know it was from the the game or whatever but i did it comes back every time you're in the unlimited blade works yeah. and they add more to it every time and if you go to the soundtrack you know they clearly say like this is you know version one version two whatever mm -hmm. um and it's really cool to listen to them because it is a really striking piece of music yeah, and that's one. That's where, like, if you wanted, you could listen to like a two-hour supercut on YouTube of all the different <laughs> versions of the Emia song because it's in just about everything. Because um, there's like any of almost any of the spinoffs are going to have either a Shido, like Archer, maybe is in it, like some of the other games, like Fate Extra or obviously Fate Grand Order, um, or there's like a Shido esque character. Um, like there are even e echoes of that Emia theme in one of the songs from. Uh, Fate Zero, I think it's the song that plays when Kitsuku fights Kodamine at the end. You get a little bit of it in there. Um, so it's like just a version of the theme that has been done literally like dozens and dozens of times across the different <laughs> games and the various anime adaptations. We're obviously going to get a version of it that plays at some points in Heaven's Feel. Um, that's going to be very good. So yeah, it's it's a piece of music I really like. And it's always, it's it's hype as fuck when it shows up here. Um, yes. Because it's just, it plays, once that alarm that plays, you're like, okay, yeah, some shit's about to go down. And you are very like Pavlovianly trained by this franchise to get really hyped up whenever you hear that sound play. It's so good. And yeah, I just, I have to say, you know, I spent the last week finishing Unlimited Blade Works and finishing the visual novel, Mahotsuke no Yoru, Witch on the Holy Night, both of which lead composer was Hideyuki Fukasawa. So I have come yeah. to, that's a composer I hadn't heard much of before. Now I'm like, I, I love uh, his music. There's, there's so much good stuff in that visual novel, so much good stuff here. Really, really great score. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think one of the characters that we didn't touch on a lot and I want to talk about a little bit, even though she doesn't show up a huge amount in this show, um, but she has like some really good stuff in season two is Elia. Like she's only really in two episodes in season two. Um, but that whole section where you get her backstory um, of her getting berserker and like going out into the woods and like with the wolves and all that. Like that's mostly original because um, you get you get different versions of her of like a similar thing in the fate route where Elia is a much more prominent character. Um, but I've always found that they like everything that happens with Elia is just so fucking brutal in this show. And, it is. and that that episode is just like very haunting um, because this is definitely like the darkest ending for Elia across the three routes. And so I think it's one of the things that Unlimited Blade Works as an anime struggles with a little bit is that it just doesn't have the space to fully set her up as a character but particularly if you know her and obviously you know her a little bit from fate zero it's very fucked up what happens to that girl it's extremely fucked up but i love how they do the entire relationship with berserker it's almost this like beauty and the beast thing with the, down to the wolves scene is obviously you know that kind mm -hmm. of scene happens in beauty and the beast um this is not a, a romance in that sense but it's this protector person uh and yeah extremely tragic and Shiro never, I think, even learned why she calls him Onisa. No. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a route where she where that's one of the other things that makes him jumping out to try to save her really crazy is because the only thing he knows her from is the one time she tried to murder him in Tosaka. That's the yes. only relationship she has or he has to her. Um, yeah, which is one of the things that's very dark about this story for her perspective is that like 
no, you know, she never learns anything about like Kiritsugu. She never learns why he never came back. Um, like Shido never learns about his like relationship that he could have had with Ilya. All that stuff is like lost in this version of the story. Um, and then you you have like Heracles Berserker here, which I think is uh, another hero that I think they do a very good job of sort of realizing. I think the idea of him like his sort of persistence which is a big part of his myths, right, is that he has the nine labors of Hercules that he has to overcome, and that being, like, sort of passed down as a noble phantasm that represents, like, these nine lives that he has, um, that because you can never kill him, he never gets put down, I think is an interesting idea. And then if you know some of the Heracles myth, I think it really colors a lot of his relationship with Elia, where, obviously, since he's a berserker, he never talks, um, but one of the main things in Heracles' myth is that he kills his wife and daughter because he's tricked by Hera, who hates him because he's, uh, like, a product of Zeus cheating on her. Um, and so he... It's it's also, if people know the God of War games, it's basically where the Kratos backstory comes from. Um, and so he is this man who unwillingly murdered his own family. And so he's very much, as they show him here, he's this, like, protector, father-like figure for Elia, who Elia is also missing a father because Kiritsuka never came back for her. And so I've always found it very touching because I think if you know a little bit about the myth, you can see, I think there's, like, a lot going... It always feels like there's a lot going on behind Heracles' eyes in in this show. Um, it's true here. It's true of some of the stuff in Heaven's Feel as well, where even though he's a non-verbal character there's clearly something more going on. He's much more rational than you would think, and he's much more rational than, say, like Lancelot is in Fate Zero. Right. A couple other straight thoughts I had. Uh, I wish we got more Fujimura of Fujine, uh -huh. but given the events of this second season, it's probably for the best she's not in it much because it's all dangerous, and yes. I want her to be safe because she's wonderful, uh, but still love Fujimura. Uh, Shinji, absolute piece of shit, but yep. Hiroshi Kamiya has so much fun in this half of the show because he's just either an absolute degenerate asshole or he is shrieking in ungodly pain for several episodes because his comeuppance is Gilgamesh just shoves Ilya's heart in him and he becomes a mass of abject flesh. Uh, and I like Hiroshi Kamiya just cutting loose on all of that because it's very fun and gross and dark. Yeah, it's it's really good, and and Lancer just sort of like poking him with Gabolg, and him just yes. freaking the fuck out and bolting out of that room <laughs> is a really great moment. Another moment where uh, Kamiya goes up into the Penguin Register from Polar yes. Bear Cafe and makes me laugh very hard. Uh, it's it's so great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shinji is just like a legendary piece of shit, um, and it's <laughs> it's very true here. Yes, but I think. You know, Tosaka is the bigger person for rescuing him, yeah. and uh, even though I would, I wouldn't have done it. But you no. know, she's she's a better person than me, I guess. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's the thing of where she's a lot more like Imia than she likes to admit to herself. Right, yes. it's one of the things that makes their relationship work. It's why she admires him so much because he's able to just be like that all the time, um, and she is like you know too smart to be like that all the time. So she's constantly like kind of suppressing that part of herself. Well, Sean, everything we've watched so far this season, Karno Kyokai, Fate Zero, Unlimited Blade Works, it's been really great. Uh, is that streak going to continue for what we watch next? Oh, no. The Heaven's Feel movies are just garbage, Jonathan. There's just, I don't even know oh, why no. we're watching them. Um, you know, I'm well on the record as saying, no, they're fucking, I, it's one of the things I'm most excited about because I've only seen them once. Um, so They're it, relatively they're, recent. They're like yeah, 2019 they're to recent. 2021. Yeah. Um, so... Yes, I am extremely excited. Um, 
they uh yeah they're just fucking great you know and it's that thing of where I've said this multiple times, but it's just something that's worth repeating again, how lucky you are, Jonathan, that you just get to move on to it. Because I've always just been fascinated by imagining the hypothetical viewer who doesn't know that this game exists, doesn't know there's a whole other story, and watched all of Unlimited Blade Works just looking at the Sakura character being like, is nobody going to say a single fucking thing about the girl who's like Tosaka's little sister who got taken by the crazy old man and thrown into the worm dungeon? Is nobody ever going to bring it up? Well, it's going to get brought up next time on Japanimation Station. Japan Animation Station.